Welcome everybody to the Diecast Movie Podcast. For this episode, we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, Dad. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. And today I'm going to be doing an interview with Pat Cardi, who's an actor, producer, writer, director, and more. Creator, co-founder of Movie Phone, founding member of Holy Family Productions, CEO, creator of Feederama, and the CEO of vid4web.com. I think I got everything, or at least most of the stuff. How are you doing today, Mr. Cardi? I think that was a, that's a pretty good list right there. Uh, uh, maybe along this, the lines of this interview, I'll tell you the other 40 CEO credits. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a long list, and there's, there's, I'm sure, like I said, there's things that I left off, and I know we'll talk about those as we go through it, but we're recording this. Uh, about a week before Thanksgiving, a little less than a week before Thanksgiving of 2021. And um, right. how have you been doing so far this year? Doing really good. We had a lot of discussions about Thanksgiving this morning, so I think we're we're set and ready to go. Well, that's good. I'm looking forward to our Thanksgiving also. And um, this episode will be coming out either at the end of this year or at the very beginning of 2022. So it's going to be Happy a- New Year, everyone. Yes. <laughs> Happy New Year. <laughs> Hopefully 2022 will be the better, the best year yet. Let's hope. <laughs> That's always good to hope, I guess. Um, yeah. Now you, as an actor, most of your credits are as a child actor. What led you to go into acting? Was it more your family or was it more you or a little combination of the two? It, it was more me. Um, I discovered movies and TV when I was about five years old. We didn't have a TV in the house until I was about five or six. But I went to a couple of movies before that, and somehow I just became a part of that immediately. Uh, and that's all I ever wanted to do is figure out how that, how you do that. And I saw other children in films, and, um, and when I saw them, I was like, yeah, if they can do that, I can do it. And we lived uh, in, on Long Island in New York, so I had no idea where it happens, but I have to get to there. And it's, uh, by the time I was eight years old, we had decided to move to California. And I told my parents, I said, move next to where they make the TV shows and the movies, because that's what I'm going to do. And so we moved to California. We were in Pasadena, which in my mind wasn't close enough to Hollywood, but there we were. All I did, you know, in my spare time was try to figure out where is acting in Pasadena? You know, are there any movies or TV shows here? Um, and then through a, a set of circumstances um, that's kind of strange, my, I was in, uh, enrolled in a Catholic school in Pasadena, and, um, which I didn't like much because the, the nuns there were quite strict. Um, and my brother, Bob, who was four years older than me, was there. And he, did, he didn't like any school at all, and so he was in trouble quite a lot. He literally was getting tossed out of school one day. And I was called to the office because my dad was there and he was taking Bobby with him. And he said, I'm taking this one too. And the next day, my, my mother told me, she said, okay, go ahead and go to school. And I thought to myself, wow, what school do I go to? <laughs> you know, and she goes, don't worry about it. Just go to school. It's okay. I already talked about it with your dad. And instead of going to school, I thought, no, I got a way out here. I don't have to go to school. I started, um, I started going to movie theaters early in the day and I'd hang out until finally a manager showed up, you know, and was unlocking the door and I would talk them into letting me help 
at the theater in exchange for seeing the movies. They'd be like, what's this kid's like eight years old. Aren't you supposed to be in school? But some of them actually opened up to me. And over a period of a few weeks, I found myself at the Pasadena Playhouse. Um, I also got a job washing dishes at a restaurant, (laughs) standing on a chair, uh, washing dishes at the back of this restaurant. And um, all the actors from that I met at the Pasadena Playhouse um, who thought I was like their mascot because when they were rehearsing a play, when they'd screw up the lines, I would yell the line to them because I memorized the play right away as they were doing it. Anyway, to, to cut the story short a bit, these guys hung out at the Roma Gardens restaurant in Pasadena, which was right behind my house where I lived. And I would sneak out at night and hang out there with those actors in the bar. Um, and I drank an inordinate amount of beer for an eight-year-old back then. It was just a, you know, my mom was Australian and Australians are basically weaned on beer and so was I. Um, and so I was just one of the guys down there, even though I was eight years old. They got involved in a low-budget movie and uh, they were all having a party one night when I got there. I said, what's up? And they said, we're all going to be in this movie, you know? And so I was like, wow, you know, me too. And yeah, you too. And so I got a part in a movie and then I met the director and the director said, yeah, you can be in the movie, but I have to talk to your parents. And I thought, Oh, now I haven't been in school for like a month or two and I got to explain all this to them. So I went back and I told my dad, I said, I got a part in a movie. And, um, when I told him what it was, where, where I'd been and what had been going on, he went through the roof and he said, you stay here. I'll take care of you when I get home. And he's, and he got in the car to drive around the block to the restaurant. So as quick as can be, I just ran out the back of the house and, uh, and over the fence and into the restaurant, into the bar. And I said, you guys, I said, my dad's coming. He used to work with the mafia. He's going to kill everybody in here. He is so pissed off, you know, and they were like, Patty. And then I heard my dad coming in the restaurant yelling, where's Tony? I want to talk to Tony. And uh, I could hear the waitress saying, oh, I, he's, I think he's in the bar. And so before I could get out of the bar, my dad burst in. He goes, where's Tony? And uh, the guy behind the bar was an actor named uh, 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 James um, James Almanzar. And James literally threw his, his uh, um, apron, you know, his apron over my head and hid me behind the bar. And uh, Tony came out and said, what's up? And he goes, what are you telling my son this crap about? He's going to be in a movie. And the director came in and, you know, he, he was at the back of the bar and he came over and he goes, he is going to be in the movie. Aren't you Pete Cardi or Cardamone? That's what our name was back then. He says, our, my, your son has told us how proud he is because you used to be a child actor on the radio, which my dad was. And um, he said, yeah. And, and now he said, yeah, he said, he, he said, he thought you'd like to be in the movie too. And he goes, what are you talking about? My dad's like in, you know, he knows he's being fed a, you know, a line. And so the director says, we're making a movie about Italians behind enemy lines in World War II who are going to help save these Americans who are lost. And so this, this is, these Italian guerrillas are going to, you know, save them. And we think you'd make a perfect one. You're Italian. You know World War II. You know the whole bit. And my dad totally got quiet. And pretty soon he was like buddying up with these guys. And then Jim like sort of ushered me out the back of the room and said, go home, get out of here. And so I went home. I don't think I spilled my beer on the way out though. 
in any case. Um, so I went home and my mom told me, get up and get into bed right now. And so when dad came home, I, I heard her saying, he's already asleep. I'll have to deal with him tomorrow. And so, uh, in the morning she had finally calmed him down. And in the morning he said, uh, don't ever do that again. He goes, have you been going to school? And I said, no, I didn't know which school to go to. And he goes, well, we're signing up today. <laughs> so I went to the local public school and my dad took me in and got signed in. So. I had my little sabbatical and became an actor. That is a pretty wild story. <laughs> <laughs> That's only one of them. <laughs> it seems like people that you know strive for things, especially when they're young, uh, just run into all kinds of strange situations and adventurous situations. Uh, I'm editing a book right now about all these different adventures. Um, and originally I was going to write the book because, because I didn't, get all my dad's stories. I didn't get my mom's stories. You know, they were just things that passed through. And after they passed away, you know, I could only remember so much of it, but it's coming third party, you know, to my, to my kids, their grandchildren. And I felt really bad that I didn't have something, you know, to show them a book or, or something. I had a few videotapes that I had shot of them talking. And so I thought I'm going to write a book so that my grandkids and my future grandkids, you know, can read about their pop pop and, and that's where it started. But when people started hearing, I was writing a book, all of a sudden publishers started contacting me because there are publishers, uh, you know, like Bear Manor media and a few of those guys, all they publish is books that are either memoirs or technical books about the industry or radio or TV or old movie stars, that type of thing. And they contacted me right away. Uh, you know, they heard me on the radio or something. And so now I have, you know, publishers to talk to when this thing is done. I'm editing right now. And, uh, and all those stories are in there. And some of them are pretty, uh, pretty racy stories. But, you know, they're just things that happened to me as a kid that you wouldn't expect your kid to get into these kinds of situations. But I did. I just find it interesting being eight years of age and all that stuff happening just at that age. And um yeah. That, that's, that's like I said, that's pretty fascinating. And for people that when this book comes out, I can just imagine that's, that's just one story. Who knows what other stories we'll find out today. And then what stories will be in the book also. You have to let me know. I was like a New York kid. Out. You've probably seen movies about kids in New York, you know, and how crazy they are and how they get into situations. Well, me and my brothers were just like that. I mean, I didn't think anything of after everybody's supposed to be in bed, going out the window and jumping over to the restaurant. And I would do that three or four nights a week. And my parents never knew I was doing it. Not until I got involved in the movie. And the, the other guys in the cast, who were all these cats that hung out at Tony's, they'd say, hey, Pete, how come you let your kids stay out till 10, 11 o'clock at night? He's like in the bar every night. And my dad was like totally surprised. You know, it was like every day he'd come in and go, did this happen to you? Were you doing this? Were you upstairs with those girls at Tony's? You know, <laughs> and so... I just, I, I, you know, let the beans smell. I, you know, crazy. I was over there one Saturday and Tony's girlfriend was a young, beautiful girl, actually. She wanted to be in the movies too, but she was, um, it was very hot out. And, uh, the guys were working on the restaurant. There was a couple of walls being fixed or something, but there was a bunch of guys over there and she comes walking downstairs. She didn't have a bathing suit. She had her broad panties on. And this isn't a religious channel, is it? No. Is it? No. <laughs> no. And she had her broad panties on, and she was, like, sweating, and she was hot, and they were working on the air conditioning. They couldn't get it fixed. 
and she was complaining. And I said, well, we have a swimming pool. You come over and swim in the swimming pool, just across the fence. And she was like, oh, great, I'll do it. Well, we didn't have a swimming pool. There was like a kiddie pool in the backyard that my sisters were playing in. But she jumped over the fence in her bra and panties, and she got in the pool because she wanted to cool down. And so she sat there, and my sisters, they got up, and they ran the house, and they said, Dad, Patty's brought some naked girl over to the house. You know, and she's in our pool. <laughs> my dad came outside, and he looked, and I said, hey, look, Dad, that's, uh, oh, I can't remember her name, Rose, that's Rose. Rose is hot, you know, meaning, you know, she's hot, so she needs to be in the pool. And my dad was like, I can see that, Pat. She's very <laughs> You go in the house. And so I went in the house and my two brothers are standing on the balcony looking over. And my dad's like, you guys get in the house too. And they're going, geez, and my brothers are like, how did you get here over here? I said, she, that's my girlfriend. And my brother started beating up on me. He's like, she's not your girlfriend. No girl like that was going to look at you. <laughs> anyway, my dad helped her out of the pool and said, yeah, maybe next time you come in a bathing suit or just don't come at all. And so got back. And he said, stuff like that was just, anyway <laughs> I'm feeling sorry for your dad and mom because <laughs> you never knew what was going to happen I mean, yeah, day to day. yeah my mom was my dad was kind of brutal he was uh, he was very in, my dad was um, he was Italian his dad was born and raised in Italy uh, um, his, his mom was not born and raised in Italy she was born and raised in Little Italy in New York uh, they had been divorced when the kids, they had five kids that were all very young and they divorced and they split up the kids amongst the family. So nobody grew up with their mom and dad. My dad grew up with an uncle Phil who was just a brute. He used to beat him all the time. And so my dad growing up thought, thought that's the way you raise kids. You got to beat them, you know? And so my two older brothers, you know, got, got beat around a lot and that was very hard to live with. And my dad was a screamer. He's yelling all the time. And so, um, Inside, he was a good guy. He was a nice guy. But when he got pissed about things, think of an old Italian guy screaming. That was my dad. And um, and my mom told him one time he got really mad at me for something. And my mom told him, you ever touch this boy, you're going to jail. That's it. No more of this shit. And so um, so that was pretty much the end of it. You know, other than the two, my older brothers, they still got it every now and then. But my dad and I were pretty tight during the years when I was a child actor because he was partially he was sort of living his fantasy through me you know he always wanted exactly what i found and i did remember him telling stories about him singing on the radio and being a child actor on radio plays and that he was in a lot of live theater until the kids started being born uh, and then coming to california he was an engineer and just never even approached being in the movies until this happened um, but he was my full-time manager um, the director of that film got hired by Warner Brothers to direct episodes of their TV shows, which at the time were, uh, am I frozen right now? Oh, okay, because it freezes up. The shows at the time at Warner Brothers were Hawaiian Eye, 77 Sunset Strip, uh, Cheyenne, uh, I can't remember them all, there were a bunch of them. And so um, Bob, the director of, of our war film, which was titled The Quick and the Dead. Um, and this is the predates the Western, The Quick and the Dead, by the way. Uh, people are always asking me about that. He got uh, hired to do second unit on feature films and anything he worked on, 
he would get one of his actors from the quick and the dead, a SAG card and get him a part in the show. And so he did that with me too. And he would literally have parts written in the show. So there's a little kid in the doctor's office or there's a little kid who asks a question. So I always had a line or two, Hawaiian I 77 cents at strip and, um, and some other shows there and a couple of feature films came out of that. And, uh, and from that, he also got me an agent and she was one of the top child agents in Hollywood. And, uh, and he told her, he said, I don't want him being just a long, you know, in a long line of kids that you have in your agency. I want him to be on top. You know, you got to get him out there. And so every month I was doing another TV show or a movie or a commercial. And, uh, I mean, I worked a lot until probably until I was, 17, 16 or 17. And then I moved to Australia. It started dying out after 16, actually. Yeah. Cause as I say, your IMDB has a plethora of credits for TV shows like branded, yeah. um, gun smoke yeah. intruders. I mean, yeah. all those shows in that time frame where people would be in multiple episodes, raw high, you're in all the classic ones and it's ones that people probably don't remember nowadays also. Right. There was one TV show where you were a regular. Yes. And that was the um, It's About Time. Right. And Do you know anything about it? If I, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, and I saw a couple episodes of this, I think, a long time ago, but it was like the Gilligan's Island, but set in the past, where two astronauts went in the past and were dealing with a cave or caveman family. And, and you, right. and you and were part of that family. Right. And my mom and dad were Imogene Coca and Joey Ross. Um, Imogene Coca, of course, several shows, your show of shows, uh, Grindel. Um, she was in one of the vacation movies, too. She like the paid, first one. Yeah, where she was the aunt and they went to pick her up to go on the trip with her and somehow she died. So they tied her on the roof to bring her home. Anyway, she was great. She was a wonderful person too. She was like my mom on the set. She treated me just like she was my mom. And, um, and Joey, he was a little bit cantankerous. Joey was a great comedian. He was in car 54 and it's about time. And he was uh, a comedian on talk shows like Johnny Carson. And he did a lot of, you know, catch skills, uh, you know, summer, you know, entertainment, you know, being a comedian. Um, but he was a bit cantankerous on the set. And uh, sometimes he would just get a little unnerved that I was so fidgety before we'd be doing a scene together. So we'd be outside waiting to enter the room and I'd be, you know, flipping out and, you know, just being silly. And that's the way I loosened up, I guess. And, um, and he'd yell at me. He'd say, why can't you just hold still? And Imogene would pull me close and she'd go, you leave the boy alone. It was like, <laughs> it was like being at home, you know. He's yelling at me and she's like protecting me. And so it was a good, we all had a good relationship. They, of course, at the Christmas party for It's About Time, um, you know, he got up and entertained everybody and about five minutes into it, he told a dirty joke. And my dad and the teacher and I had to leave. So we missed the rest of the show. But um, It's About Time was was produced by Short Schwartz, uh, who you know from uh, Gilligan's Island. He was the creator and producer of Gilligan's Island. And Gilligan's Island had been on uh, for two years before our show came on. And during the two years that um, Gilligan's Island was on, 
they did a, an episode with a cosmonaut landing on the island in a spaceship. And then they did another episode where uh, Gilligan was dreaming that he was a caveman and they built caveman sets. So basically that was the setup for It's About Time. And then he, he wrote the show, basically the pilot, before he did those two signs because he knew he wasn't going to get that much money to do a pilot. So he had these incredible sets built and ready to go. And, and then he made the pilot. And that was directed by Richard Donner, who just passed away recently. And Richard was a, a wonderful guy and a very collaborative director. And he was, a, he was kind of a trickster. And, and, you know, he was always laughing. And the crew always enjoyed working with him, as, as the actors did as well. And he, he's known for the Lethal Weapon movies and the, the Superman with Chris. Uh, Christopher Reeve. Christopher Reeve. Uh, uh, people, I mean, he's one of the directors that people know. I mean, he's not Steven Spielberg, but he's like one, one rung below that on the popularity la uh, ladder. And uh, he and Mel Gibson playing pranks on each other. That became a TV special just before the Lethal Weapon movie came out. They had all this uh, eight millimeter, uh, not eight millimeter film, but eight millimeter video that they were both shooting of these pranks they were playing on each other. And I got to transfer that to one inch video for them so that they could cut that thing together when I was working in videotape years later. So um, the show was, again, two astronauts going back in time, like Killigan and the, the guys fish out of water, you know, locked up on this island that they could never get off of. Uh, until the show was canceled. <laughs> but unfortunately, uh, we lasted 12, 12 episodes and then we were canceled. But, but um, Sherwood talked them into um, rebooting the show as uh, bringing the cave people back uh, to the 20th century with the astronauts. So we lost half of the part of the cast when just the cave family came to the 20th century on the spaceship. There were chasing us they were going to boss and the, the tribe we were going to kill us because we were you know doing all these magic tricks according to them and so we got on the spaceship and came back to the 20th century um and i i thought they should have renamed the show the beverly cave billies because basically it was the beverly hill billies but only it was cave people at this point in time living in the 20th century and we had some interesting and funny situations there but um, the president of the network, which was uh, Paley, was it William Paley? Anyway, the, whoever the president of the, he didn't like the show. He didn't like Gilligan's Island, and he didn't like It's About Time. And also, because of the, the trade out and the schedule, they were losing Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke was going to have to be canceled. And Paley's wife was like, no, you can't, you can't cancel Gunsmoke. So they moved the schedule around and they canceled our show and they canceled Gilligan's Island at the same time. Um, and then they had to come up with another show. So they put General Ben on in our place. But for years, people have remembered the show, you know. And now, of course, it's on DVD. You can buy all the episodes on DVD. And also it plays on two or three different uh, oldies channels uh, on your cable TV. Yeah. So people still remember and I think if you like Gilligan's Island, you're 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 pretty much going to like this show because it's this roughly the same sensibility, same creator. I mean, it's if you right. like that, if you like one, you're going to like the other. It just brings you a smile. Yeah, what Sherwood did was his his. Um, if you follow his talent, he also did the Brady Bunch, and um, uh, he did another one called Harper Valley PTA. 
basically what he did was he created shows that the family could watch together. You know, they weren't uh, all that astute as far as the comedy goes. It wasn't very progressive. It was basically things that you could watch with your kids at seven thirty, eight o'clock at night before the kids went to bed. Um, and the parents would never have to be explaining anything to the kids or, uh, or having to turn off the show because nothing ever got out of control for kids. They could watch it and, and they could laugh at it. And mostly kids did. So you got to watch the show, watch your kids get entertained and kiss them goodnight, you know, and, and that's what his talent was. That's what he did. And he did a great job of it, even though the critics were, you know, throwing fireballs at him constantly. They didn't like how corny it was. I had some friends, including uh, that special effects friend I told you about uh, earlier before we started the show, um, who made a film called Planet of Dinosaurs. And Planet of Dinosaurs was basically, you know, like it's about time a spaceship crash lands on this planet and there's dinosaurs uh, on the planet. And they're chased by dinosaurs and so forth. Um, When they were showing the film, distributors weren't getting it. You know, they were like, this is like a you know, we don't know what this is. It's not very intelligent. It's just people being chased by dinosaurs and then they end up not being able to get off that planet. <clears throat> so we brought a bunch of kids in to watch it. The kids went nuts. They loved it. And so they rebranded it as a film for kids because there was nothing in it objective, uh, objectable. And, um, and the film did really well. All of a sudden, I forget who picked it up. Uh, they were playing it with the movie Caveman. So I don't remember who the distributor was, but they picked it up and they played it as the B movie. Back when we used to have B movies. Um, they played it as the B movie with Caveman and it, it played all over the world. It was just phenomenal. And it was one of those films that at first you thought, oh man, this isn't even going to make it on screen. Long before the internet, of course. So um People don't understand what the audience is sometimes, and and once they understood it, then they understood what uh, Sherwood was up to. Wonderful man, wonderful man. I think that's a common theme with um, different people I've talked to is you'll have these, I like to call them the suits, where they think they know Mm -hmm. what the people want, and and sometimes they're right, and they're not always wrong. I mean, I'm I'm not going to say that they're always wrong, but sometimes they they misjudge. They misjudge things, yeah. and then they, they don't realize this is what it should be like because sometimes things are – you have a creator that's ahead of the game, and that's – and because it hasn't happened yet, they don't think it's going to work. There's an epidemic of executives who think they know better. Yeah, they ruin films. For example, Let's Kill Uncle. Oh, yeah. Let, let's talk about Let's Kill Uncle since you brought it up. <laughs> Excuse me. And uh, um, that's the William Castle thing. That was – Right. That got destroyed by Universal's, you know, guys in suits. Um, it, it was it was uh, taken from a book called Let's Kill Uncle by Rohan Grady. Uh, and it was a good book. Um, I thought it was a little hard for children to read, but it was a children's book. And the book was, you know, Castle went off on his own tangent in the, in the thing. The original ending of the film... Oh, I should probably talk about, mention what the film's about. It's a good film. You can actually find it on the internet. Uh, if you type in Let's Kill Uncle movie, uh, there's some Russian site. I think it's um, ru.ok, I think is where you can find it. Um, I know it's on YouTube, and, it, and it's also available on a Blu-ray. Right. 
Uh, yeah, we did a Blu-ray of it last year, I think. Yeah, either you know, last year or the year before. I did an interview for that one. But the film's about uh, a young man who's 12 years old who inherits $5 million as a result of his parents uh, dying. And he gets sent to live with his only surviving relative, who is an uncle, who is a World War II uh, spy uh, hero. And this book takes place in the 60s. So the spying is over, but he's still considered he's got an autobiography and he's still quite the fellow. And so um, uh, the, the, the main character, Barnaby, who I played, is very excited you know, about going to live on this mysterious island with his uncle, who's a spy. And there's a young girl who comes along on it. That's Mary Batum, who you talked with her a few weeks ago, and, and she told a bit about this story. And, um, and so Mary and I are the only two kids on the island and, and hanging out. And, um, and then something happens where all of a sudden Barnaby realizes he's in danger. And his uncle picks him up and tells him, now, listen, yes, there was an accident that happened. You could have gotten hurt. He goes, but as long as you're in the house, you're safe. But anytime you step out of the house, something might happen to you. You might get killed. And he goes, and by the way, if there's a little girl with you at the time, there might be two accidents at the same time. And so he goes back, Barnaby goes back to the little girl and says, my uncle's trying to kill me. And she says, well, Let's kill him first. And so uh, that's basically the rest of the movie is about the kids trying to kill the uncle and the uncle trying to kill the kids. Um, in the book, um, it literally ends up where, where Barnaby is climbing to the top of a steeple, you know, get away from uncle who's just barely got his hands on, on the kid's foot. And he, he's going to throw the kid off the top of the steeple because he's been chasing him. And I won't tell you what the ending is of the book in case you want to read it. But um, in this movie, the president of the studio uh, was very unhappy with that ending. He said, this is a kid's film. I'm looking at the I'm looking at the dailies and I'm saying this is a kid's show and you can't kill people in a kid's show. You just don't do that. And uh, Castle was like, I do that all the time. I make kids films and people die. You know, 13 Ghosts, you know, which when I heard I was going to be in the film, the guy who made 13 Ghosts, I was over the moon. That's what, that was like, I went to the theater every day to see that movie because it was so good for me at, you know, 10 years old. In any case, Lou Wasserman was the head of the studio. And one day there was an argument on the set about this. Uh, and they told everybody to leave. And so everybody left the stage except for Wasserman and Castle and me. I was inside the Beechcraft Bonanza airplane that was on the set. And I just ducked down and opened the window because I wanted to hear what was going on. And they were literally going at each other. Um, my biggest takeaway from that was that by the time they finished their argument, Wasserman was pissed and he turned around and walked out the room. And then he turned back to Castle and he said, and another thing, he goes, you got this kid inheriting $20 million. He goes, change that to $5 million because for $20 million, I'd kill a fucking kid myself. So that was the end of that. And they were, they had been arguing about the ending of the film. And so we shot three endings to the film and none of which were Castle's ending and none of which were the book ending of the film. They were just different versions of what the, 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 the suits upstairs wanted. Um, it, 
either way, it wasn't going to be good at the end because of what the suits did to the film. The film up to that point, though, is a lot of fun. Yes, People it is. People tell me this. <laughs> right. What is, you, you know, I mean, you had an opinion, right? Yeah, I enjoyed it. Everything was, I loved the movie. It just didn't stick the landing. <laughs> <laughs> it landed with, with uh, yeah, with, with wheels up, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it did what Beechcraft, Beechcraft finances are famous for. It bellied up. <laughs> but up to that point, it's, you know, you got to love it and people react to it. As an adult, I've been to screenings of it where they've invited me to do Q&A afterwards. And, um, and th th two questions, you know, how come I never heard of this film? It was great. You know, I loved it. I wanted to see it when I was a kid. It was in the theater for a week. It disappeared. And the second question was, well, what was up with the ending, Pat? What happened? <laughs> Couldn't they come up with a better ending than that? Well, in the original script, there was a better ending than that, but that's not what the studio wanted to do. Well, then, um, that was the end of uh, Castle working with Universal. He just couldn't stand that they were interrupting. There's another little caveat to that, I'll tell you. I wasn't supposed to be in Let's Kill Uncle. Um, I was under contract to Universal Studios. Um, because I did a film there before that called Anal Miguel. And Anal Miguel was another children's film, basically. Um, and while we were making it, I got a call to take pictures with an actor over at 20th Century Fox. Um, they were making a science fiction TV series called Lost in Space. And they asked me to be in these pictures, and I was... Will Anderson for or Will Robinson for a day, and uh, and after we left, the agent called us and said we're having a problem with Universal. They won't let you know Pat out of the contract because they gave me a seven year contract. As soon as they saw the rushes, they said we're going to sign him up. You know, so everybody that they liked it that, that they liked in their films got a seven year contract. You know, which meant if they want to, they can you know lock you up in a room for seven years and nobody will ever hear from you again or they'll put you in movies or they'll dump you, you know, it's the, you, they have all the options, but they had a seven year contract and uh, wouldn't let us out of it. And they said, no, we're developing a series for him. He's, he's doing a TV series here. At the same time they were developing Gidget, you know, and I forget what the other, there was another film, that, another series that was like that. So I was unhappy. I didn't get to do that that show but uh, to take nothing away from Billy Mooney who really he I don't know if I could have did what he did he was amazing in that role he was perfect for that role but I did feel bad that I didn't get to do the science fiction and TV series they were talking about well what happened was there was a long period of time in between it's about time and Anal Miguel I mean between uh, Anal Miguel and Let's Kill Uncle there was a long period of time where I didn't work I, did, I went to school at the studio every day and there was no interviews. There was no script showing up. There was just nothing was happening. And so um, we got called by Sherwood Schwartz to come over and interview for It's About Time. And I did. And they said, well, we're going to put you in the pilot. And my dad didn't tell them I was under a seven-year contract. He just said, okay, let's do that. So we did the pilot. What's the chance that the pilot's going to sell? You know, 500 are made every year and 20 of them get on TV. And so the, immediately the CBS bought the pilot and we were signed up to do it. 
when um, the lawyers at Fox read this in the trades, we got called into court. I mean, immediately it was like, they have to cease and desist. They can't do this. And of course, CBS could have got another kid, but they decided, you know, Pat, if you can fight this, if your dad can, you know, make this thing go away, then you're in the show. If not, we got to recast. We went into court and, um, and then I was in there and uh, they, the judge literally asked me, you know, what do you want to do? Do you want to be in the seven year contract? He goes, I don't know if I can break it. You guys made a commitment. He goes, your mom and dad signed the contract. And my dad stood up and said, no, his mother didn't sign the contract. And the judge said, he, she didn't. So he looked at me and said, what do you want to do, Pat? And I said, I want to do the TV series. And they said, okay, the contract's null and void. His mother didn't sign it. And so Universal and their lawyers were telling us and sending us notes. Nice work, Mr. Cardamon. Your, your son will never work again. You know. Um, well, the very next thing after we shot the first half of the season of It's About Time was I went to the Universal Studios to interview for another part. You know, we told them, I can't do this because Universal is not going to have me. Uh, and you know who the casting director was on Let's Come Let's Go? It was John Batham, the director. He was the director of uh, Saturday Night Fever and War Games and a bunch of, he did a bunch of great films. But he was a casting director at the time. He moved up the ladder at Universal from the, from the mailroom. He was also Mary Batham's brother. Um, so he talked to me for about 10 minutes in his office and then he said, excuse me, I got to make a call. And he picked up the phone and he said, Bill, William Castle, he goes, Bill, I have Barnaby in my office right now. He goes, I'm bringing him up to you. This is the guy. And I went up to the office and, and Castle said, oh, great. This, you're, you're it. You know, you're the guy. We read lines and, and then they called me in again and Mary was there. And Mary and I just, we became fast friends like immediately. We were playing around like Chrissy and Barnaby in the movie in the outer office. And they were watching us through the door going, oh, my God, the chemistry these guys have. You know, this is great. We're going to do it. But then the next thing I heard was the film was canceled or it was at least postponed. And Bill was using all contract players in the film. But the Universal wouldn't let him use me. And so he went back to his contract, which said that he could cast one character on his own. And this is the character. And so they were pissed about it. And I mean, they just harped on him constantly. So there were a lot of arguments about how the film was being made, you know, change this line to that line. The ending's got to change. The kid can't be worth $20 million. You know, just a lot of weird stuff. So we were always getting shut down on the set, you know, because they were going to have words. And he didn't want to, Castle wouldn't talk to anybody but Lou Wasserman. He was the head of the studio. I don't know if you ever heard of Lou Wasserman. You, yeah, no, I've never heard of him. He, he was one of the guys that created Universal Studios. He's one of the guys that created MCA. Um, MCA is Music Corporation of America, which was a uh, music performer agency in New York, which bought Universal Studios, which made horror movies. And that's, you know, Lou was, uh, I think, married to the head's daughter or something. Anyway, they were so angry with each other that literally the studio did not advertise the movie. They put it out in theaters and literally got their $500,000 back or whatever it was they made movies for at the time. They never spent over a million dollars on a film. I doubt it. They, I don't know what the budget was on, on um, To Kill a Mockingbird, but it was pretty low. It's like Psycho. The budget was like a TV budget for an episode of a TV show. That's, you know, just the way they worked. And so, um, 
so they literally put the movie out for a week all over the country, got their money back, and that was the end of it. And in fact, I don't know who got it out of the vault. Was it um, uh, Kino Lorber? I think they talked Universal out of the negative to do the to do the um, DVD. But up to that point, there had not been any. There was never a VHS of it. There was never, you know, an early DVD of it, let alone Blu-ray. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, it came out. The same thing with Anal Miguel. They've never released Anal Miguel in home video form. Um, that's a hard film to find. Oh, you know, trust me, um, I tried looking only, for it. <laughs> the only people that I know are TMC. Um, is it TMC or TC? Turner Classic the, Movies? The, or Turner, or, or, Turner, yeah. Yeah, Turner Classic Movie, TCM, or, yeah. or is it Turning Mover? Oh, now you got me thinking. Well, what's one of those two? And it's one of those two. One theaters. of those two got a hold of a print and got permission to show it on their movie thing. And um, and the only copy I ever got of it for a long time was just recording it off of the TV when it played. Um, so I had that copy for a long time. And then a film collector in England found the film and it heard that I said, I, I don't have a copy of it. And literally he had a transfer made of the 16 millimeter and sent me both the 16 millimeter print and the DVD of it. So that's what I have here. Uh, but you know, rarely seen, rarely seen. Yeah. Cause I never, I was trying looking for it cause I saw, you know, when people look at your IMDB page or if they put yeah. your name in the picture of you playing Miguel is the picture that's shown and yeah. it's, it's a very hard movie to find. But before we talk about Miguel, I want to talk a little more about Let's Kill Uncle. Sure. You got to work with Nigel Green because he played yeah. Uncle. I mean, and he yeah. seemed to be rel- and he seemed to be hitting in all cylinders as the devious yeah. Uncle. What was it, he what was was it like? <laughs> he was great. He was, you know what? Every, almost every English actor I've ever worked with were j- absolute gentlemen. I produced a movie with... Uh, Oh gosh, Michael, Michael, um, huh? Michael Golf? Mike, Michael York. York, okay. Michael oh, York. I was trying to guess different pre- Michaels. <laughs> Michael York, a low budget picture I produced in in Las Vegas, and every time we had any kind of hassle or equipment broke down or something, he would sit there and do Shakespearean soliloquies for the crew while we were trying to get our situation back up. He was just amazing. And he was working under the worst conditions. We had such a low budget movie. And uh, our assistant director had no idea how to schedule. There'd be days when he wasn't even working and he'd be sitting in his trailer all day long on the set where he could have been out in Vegas somewhere having a good time. So um, that, that, you know, uh, I don't know why I went there, but um, this might be something you cut out. Um, You're talking about British actors are wonderful to work with. There you go. So that's the story uh, of British actors. And Nigel Green was the same. I mean, he would do soliloquies all of a sudden. He was generously friendly with all of us. Mary and I both adored the guy. Um, There was no uh, scared dynamic, you know, like I worked with um, uh, uh, one of the gun smokes that I did, Bruce Dern played a character who was trying to kill this kid. I was the kid and he was a method actor. And so from the first minute I met him, he told me 
this is going to be a great thing to kill a, to kill a child star live on TV. He said horrible things because he wanted me to be afraid of it. Um, but there was none of that on, on Let's Kill Uncle, Let's Kill Uncle. He, and the, you know what? He had just done a film. I think they had just filmed The Icarus Line. And so Michael uh, came, uh, came to our set almost every day. They hung out together. They were drinking out of a glass, some kind of a brownish yellow mixture. I'm not sure what it was, but it made them seem to be happy and laid back, whatever it was. <laughs> and it wasn't beer because I knew what beer was. Uh, in any case, um, they were just, Michael York, I mean, Michael Kane uh, was wonderful to me. He was just, I, I had learned how to do an imitation of him before I ever met him. And so I kept on doing, you know, this imitate, this dumb imitation that I had. We'd go to dinner or to lunch at the commissary. And when the waitress would come around, before they got to him to ask him what he'd like, I'd stand up and I'd go, that's Michael Kane. He's me uncle. And, uh, of course, everybody would laugh and he'd go, stop it, Cardi, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, it was great fun for me because I just, I loved his movies. My mom did too. And so it was great working with him. I mean, having him on the set all the time, but Mike, but, but, uh, uh, uh Nigel Green was, he was, he was wonderful to work with. Um, Mary and I changed the lines a lot in the movie too. Castle was not the kind of director that told you what to say. He didn't tell you to stick to the script. He found that if actors found something in the character that the writer didn't get, because how could he get everything that, that an actor can pull out of a character? Um, we became, you know, we became two little snippy kids who, you know, when it came down, when the chips were down, they were, they were tight. But when they were not, the chips weren't down, then they were snooty to each other all the time. They were trying to one-up each other all the time. That wasn't in the script. But we did it in almost every single scene. We try to top each other. And then we'd laugh about it afterwards. And Bill would always say something like, hey, you're having fun with this, aren't you? Well, we're loving it. Just keep, keep going. You guys have chemistry. We like, we like this. And Bill did something for Mary. And for me, uh, like right in the beginning, when we were in, in the um, uh, practice stages of, the, of doing the film rehearsal, he asked me, so what are your hobbies? What do you do? You know, and I told him, well, right now, I'm like really into magic. And he literally went to Burt Wheeler's magic shop on Hollywood Boulevard and bought a whole bunch of cheap magic tricks. And every day he'd come to the dressing room and go, hey, look what I got. Try this invisible ink. Look at this. Look at what it does. You write on it and look, it disappears. You know, and then he'd bring another one. Look, you can, these two solid rings, you can hook them together like this. You got to know how to do it though. So he'd play with me for a little while and then he'd go off. And so we had this rapport all the time. He loved those little toys just as much as I did. He was a big kid and he was great to work with. But I always called him Mr. Castle. I didn't call him Bill on the set. One time I said, hey, Bill, you think if I move this way, I'll be in the right light? And Mr. Castle said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. I said, Mr. Castle, I wasn't talking to you. I was talking to the Bill, the lighting guy. They said, thank you very much. He goes, the kid has respect. That's good. <laughs> so anyway, it was it was a great set to be on. It really was. Even the arguing, I love that. <laughs> now I know you said the ending is in the book, and um, for listeners that have not read the book or whatever, and are curious what the real ending is, we're I'm gonna if you, if you don't mind spoiling the ending in the book, then that way for listeners that may not find the book, they'll have an idea what the original ending would have been. I'm giving them a warning right now that if they don't want that book to be spoiled 
they can skip ahead. Fast forward. A yeah, couple skip of ahead. <laughs> Actually, I can only I only really remember the last page, and basically it was that he had the girl set up to kill her, but he had the boy running. The boy was running away from him, so he had to leave the girl alone, the uncle, and he had to chase the boy. And the boy literally got out the window and was hiding on the roof of the steeple in the building. And uncle finds him and grabs his foot. And just as he does, he gets shot in the back and falls off the, the building because the, the, the uh, protection officer that had brought Barnaby to the island had been asked to stay for a few days and just relax and, and enjoy himself and help the boy get acclimated. Um, but somewhere in the background, the, the sheriff or the, the, the protection agent, sergeant. whatever he was, he, the sergeant, right. The sergeant had figured things out and went looking for them. And when he saw what was going on on the roof, he shot him and, and literally he just, you know, falls to his death. And that was a very exciting chase thing in the end. Um, uh, Bill, when he did the ending of our film, he he did quite a lot. I mean, there was quite a lot of action taking place in the chase scenes in the end. And then it got to a very somber sort of moment where hypnotism gets involved in the thing. And that's one of the things that they changed in it, <clears throat> that this hypnotism thing happened. And uh, without spoiling the ending, you know, uh, let me just say it it just didn't go very far after the hypnotism. I, I don't want to give away yeah, what the ending was. Yeah, not gonna, I don't want to give her the ending in the, the movie. I was just wondering what the ending in the book yeah. was. So people, if they the ending of the, the movie, book was, yeah. Yeah. The people at the end, in the end of the book, he, he gets shot in the back and he falls off the building. The, the, um, the, uh, 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 sergeant. And then Barnaby gets down. And that makes perfect sense because when I watched the movie, you can see the sergeant first not believing Barnaby at all and then starting to piece things together. You see these, these shots mm-hmm. of him piecing things together, like starting to wonder, like, is uncle really t-? like, and starting to look into things. And so the yeah. seeds are all planted for that type of ending to happen. Right. And uh, obviously it should have ended in that, um, in that area at the end, you, you know, just before they get out of the building, it was going to end on that patio right there. Um, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so, um, <clears throat> that was going to happen. And then they came up with three lines for me to say, um, when the camera was on me and, uh, I say these three lines, you know, one line and then do the next one and do the next one. And um, I didn't know why I was doing them, <clears throat> except for I'd heard the argument, and I thought, this isn't going to be the end, is it? And uh, it, Bill was like, I don't know. Well, William Castle, he said, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. I don't know. Just forgive me. Just say these lines. And so I did. And then they used one of those instead of what we'd done in the back, which is a shame. You know, and I know that there's footage still because they save those negatives forever. Even the even the trims, they save those. So there's trims out there somewhere that show the real ending. So maybe somebody who can get into that will know. That would I be, used to work in film halls. Yeah, that would be nice to have the, the original ending, or the, the, the intended ending, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Oh, 
Yeah, but I mean, I, I agree with I agree with a lot of people. The movie is very enjoyable. It, it's just that last few minutes. I mean, really, it's just the last yeah. few minutes. But the interplay between the three of you, Nigel Green, Mary, and yourself is is yeah. so wonderful. How it's go going about, and it reminded me of those seventies Disney ish type like kids shows where you right. see the kids get into trouble right. and they had these hijinks going on and this kind of stuff. And yeah. it was very reminiscent of, of those type of movies. And I, I think yeah. 95% of the movie is, is, is very entertaining. And then you know, just the end. <laughs> Mary, Mary and I started dating during the making of the movie. Um, you know, we'd get done with our work. And then at the end of the day, my dad would drop us off at a theater in Hollywood and we'd watch some new movie that just came out. Um, I had a, a publicity agent at the time, uh, Tommy Phillips. And um, w- whenever I wanted to date a girl, I'd just say to Tommy, I'd say, hey, Tommy, there's the premiere of the Bible next week. Uh, is there a chance you can get, you know, two tickets for that? And he'd go, oh, Cardi, you, you snide old dog, you. I'll get you in. Don't worry. Who are you taking this time, you know? Well, that actress, Diane Sherry, I'm going to be taking her. He go, you sly dog, I'll get you those tickets. So um, I, he would always tell my dad, you know, yeah, I need to get some pictures of Pat, you know, with uh, this actress. Um, we need to get it at this premiere. So he'll get to go to the premiere. And, uh, you know, you and I will just sit in the back. You know, we don't have to, or we'll go have coffee or something while they're at the movie. So all during my, my career from the time I was like 13 on, I was going out with young actresses, Heather Menzies, and that this would all be set up for me. So I was pretty cocky back then, I think. Well, I mean, you know, I'm it, pretty lucky. It happens. I mean, you know, you, you you're living, a, you're in a certain um, area where things are happening, and you know, it's yeah, working the system. I guess. Oh you yeah. Could say. <laughs> oh, until I was 20 years old, if I got to hold hands with a girl and 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 kiss her at the end of the date, man, that was just. I, you know, and my friends in high school would be going, you know, like, well, did you, did you, yeah, kissed her. No, dude, no, no, no. You know, you, you were with her and yeah, I kissed her. It was great. (laughs) (laughs) I swear to God. I mean, I, you know, I, I didn't know about the other side of, of having a female friend until I was married. Yeah. People, people forget about that stuff. And, you know, and nowadays it seems people I don't know, with certain prob- um, people doing certain things, people think it happens way more often than it probably really does um, in reality. Well, I think the internet's kind of screwed it up for everybody, you know, because kids see this stuff when they're young now, you know, and they think that, that that's what is, is expected of them. And, and boys think, oh, this is, that, that looks great. You know, and I think that the internet's really kind of, you know, fucked it up, so to speak. It could be. We didn't have that back then. We didn't have that back then. Uh, you know, we had, if you could sneak it, then your dad's Playboy magazine or, you know, something along those lines. And that didn't really give you much. I mean, for me, that it was crazy. It was like, I'd like, didn't want anybody to see me, even if they weren't in the room. I don't want anybody to see me looking at this. This is, you know, I went to Catholic school. We don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> How, however, when I was, um, when I was 17, I was in a boys school, a Catholic boys school in Australia. And they were more open about it than the American kids were. They were just, you know, and I, I just, to me, it was like, you guys are all going to hell. You can't do this. This girl's going to hate herself tomorrow. 
You can't do it. She doesn't know what she wants. Just knock it off, you know. And they'd be like, are all Americans as stupid as you? <laughs> so that was my camaraderie in the, in the boys' school in Australia. <laughs> it's interesting how different societies have different looks of, of cult, you know, different cultural looks of different things in life and how one, you know, yeah. it, and that's why it's always, I tell my kids, like, just because we do one things one way in America, doesn't mean that other cultures are right or wrong in the way they do stuff. It's yeah. just a different right. way of doing things. And you don't want to be stuck yeah. thinking, you know, you're superior because of doing things that way, because they could be doing the same thing to us. It's better to understand why people are doing those things. And then once you understand, and it's easier to um, deal with and handle in your own psyche of what's going on instead yeah. of just prejudging people. Well, my, my, my dad was worried that um, he was probably active when he was younger. Um, and he was always telling me that it's not good. Bad things happen. You know, you, if you get a girl pregnant and, you got to marry her, you know? And I mean, when he started telling me this stuff, I didn't even know how you got a girl pregnant. I thought maybe it came from kissing or something. I don't know. And, um, and so I was pretty naive, you know? And he also said, and then if that happens, the girl, you know, she feels bad about herself and her parents send her off to live in a girl's home. And it's just a terrible thing. So I just stayed away from it. I didn't, you know, I didn't even want to wonder about it. If I got to hold her hand, you know, during the movie, and kiss her at the end of the night. I I was satisfied. That's all I needed. You know. Oh yeah, I, I, I know exactly what you're like because I, I think I, I grew up that same way. You know, it was just kind of like nice. Just to, yeah. if you had, if you're able to, to to make the movie, you could put your arm around her during the movie. You know, you're. <laughs> oh, that's I think about those painful memories. Heather Menzies. That was like, we went to see uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey. Do you know who Heather is? Heather Menzies was in uh, Piranha. She was a star of Piranha. Okay. And she was the star of, yes, it don't say it. It was a, a film about a guy who turns people into snakes, Strother Martin. Oh. Turning people into snakes. Yeah, with Dirk he, Benedict? Yeah. Yep. That one. Yeah. 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 No, it was Bradford Dillman, wasn't it? No. If, I think it was Bradford Dillman, but if, I could if, be wrong. If it's the one with the seven S's, if it's... Yeah. That, that's Dirk Benedict. That was, oh, okay. Okay. Well, I haven't seen it in years, but for some reason I had Bradford Dillman in my mind. Uh, maybe I just got the two of them confused. The reason I remember Dirk Benedict, because then I saw it, it was around the same time I saw on Battlestar Galactica, you, it was big. Are we back? Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, we're back. Uh, we're a little unstable right now. All right. Let me know when we're Oh, Dirk Benedict from Battlestar Galactica. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're frozen on my screen right now. That's all. Yeah. When I saw now you're back. When I saw Battlestar Galactica, it was around the same time I, was, I saw, and uh, and that's why I always remember because you always remembered him from St Starbuck in that original series. So it was right. I worked on that, not as an actor though. I worked behind the scenes on on that. It was it was a great show to work on. Um, Dirk Benedict. Yeah, I was thinking of Dirk Dirk Bogart or something. That's some other Dirk. Anyway, so anyway, and she was also, she played in the TV series version of Logan's Run, the TV version of Logan's Run. And, um, and she was just, you know, she was beautiful. Oh, she was in The Sound of Music. She was like the second oldest 
uh, child in, in the family, the singing family. Um, she, she was not 16 going on 17. She was 15 going on 16. Anyway, that's what I always used to say. Unfortunately, uh, Heather passed away um, a, a couple of years ago on Christmas Eve. Um, but she, a lovely girl. She was. She, we were friends for life. We were buddies. She went to Burroughs High School. I went to Burbank High School, and they were rivals. So we'd go to the football games together and uh, give each other a load <laughs> of crap <laughs> about the other team. We tease each other. But she was great. I used to go over to her house on weekends and hang out with her and her family. Very, very, very nice lady. It sounds like it. And she was married. She was married to Robert Urich. You remember Robert Urich? Yes. yes. <laughs> he was in like yes. 10 different TV series. He was the star of, you know, Dan Tana, Las Vegas, some other shows. Wasn't he in Spencer for Hire? He was. Yep, that's, what I thought. that's, that's what I thought. right. Spencer for Hire, yeah. Now, you said you worked on Battlestar Galactica. And, and what, what type of work did you do for Battlestar Galactica, the TV series? Um, I was, I worked in craft service. Um, have you heard of craft service? I think a lot of people think of craft service as being the guy that brings the coffee and the donuts to the set. Um, and that certainly is one of their jobs. Usually, uh, the way it used to be anyway, because it's, it's changed since then. The craft service local was in charge of keeping the set clean, uh, and keeping all the dressing rooms clean and putting out the food, whatever it was going to be. Um, and coffee and milk and keep, keep the water flowing and, and keeping the coffee hot. And, um, and that was, you know, a, a pretty good job to have back then. It paid well. Um, the other thing they did on the set, though, was they were the only guy that could work in any other classification on the set. In other words, you couldn't take a sound guy, you know, off a cable and have him help the, the camera guy. Um, but you could have a craft service guy help the camera guy. So we learned all these different things on the set we learned how to do a little bit of sound a little bit of camera lighting uh, grip work props you know because if they hired us if they asked us on the set you know what we're short a guy today we need you to fill in here then you'd get paid their rate because everybody got paid more than the craft service guy and and the fact that you would get paid their rate for the whole day meant that the production company didn't want to do this very often they wanted a union guy to be handling this job because they didn't want to have to pay the craft service guy, you know, time and again, his normal amount. Um, so that was like one set of jobs, but the other set of jobs was backlot craft service jobs, which was labor. Uh, you know, if it rained and the side of the hill was coming down, we were the guys that were shoveling that mess up. You know, we were the ones filling the sandbags. Um, at night, um, we would move the trailers around the dressing room trailers around the lot for, to be ready for the next day. They shot everything on stage five. Tomorrow they're shooting on stage eight and they have to move their dressing rooms over there. Um, we had greens jobs that we did where we had to move a lot of uh, trees onto a set in a studio. Uh, they'd be placed by the greensmen once they got off of the truck, but we put them on the truck, got them off the truck. Then we'd go back to the studio at the end of the shoot, pick them back up again. Same thing with sets. All the sets that were you know, being built in the, in the mill or were stored in the in the scene dock, we would get those things out of the scene dock. We were in charge of the scene dock, essentially. We would get them from the mill or the scene dock, put them on the soundstage. The grips would literally take them from us and set them up, and then we'd come back. When they'd take them down, we'd put them on the barges and 
and put them back. So a lot of cleaning sound stages at the end of the night, like when they removed all the sets, literally for a, think of a sound stage floor as being about the size of, of the, a, a neighborhood block. You know, I mean, literally in there with a broom, not blowers, but with a broom, brooming the whole sound stage all night long. Um, and you had to get at least four sound stages done if that's what the call was for that night. Um, so it was tough work. The first, the first night that I was done with it, I literally fell asleep by the time clock waiting for it to go off. And when I woke up and punched out my card, I said, I'm never doing that again. I'm done. And then, uh, of course, I was reminded that my wife was pregnant and I hadn't had a job before that. So I had to go back the next day and it lasted 10 years. And then from that, I decided to, uh, to study video and, uh, and uh, I started my own production company. But during the years that I did craft service, I met more stars and I met more, you know, classic actors and classic directors than I ever did as an actor. And I had more strange situations that would happen too, because in my mind, I was still one of them. I was still an actor. And I mean, if somebody was like being, you know, being difficult, um, then, you know, I would disdain those people. I'd say, oh, you, you are so lucky. Look what I'm doing. I was an actor like you. And now look what I'm doing. I'm sweeping the soundstage. I'm picking up your coffee cup. This could happen to you, you know? And they just kind of look at me like, what? Get him out of here, you know. One day, I was working on the movie Onion Field. Do you remember that? It was a Joseph Wamba book that became into a film. And uh, I think there were Oscars passed out for that one. Uh, James Woods was one of the stars of that film. Uh, Ted Danson was also one of the stars of that film. He, he, there, it was a story about um, two cops that get um, uh, kidnapped by two crooks who, you know, for one reason or another, they just they think these cops are going to turn them in, and they try to kill them. One of them gets killed. Um, but anyway, the other guy that was the star of the film uh, was John Savage. And I don't know if you remember John Savage or not. He did quite a few films, but he was difficult on the set, and he he was just you know kind of a mess out there, you know, and and he would want to do things his way, and and you you couldn't change his mind and. He was difficult, like on, on the off shots, like if they were doing a close up of an actor that he's in, you know, the other half of the scene, if they put him next to the camera, which is your, the other actor's point of view. So if the camera's on you and he's standing next to the camera, he'd be making faces and doing weird things so that you didn't really quite get your lines out, you know, because he was interrupting you and making it weird, you know, one night. We were working on a soundstage uh, in, a, in an old rental studio where the stage was leaking water in a, on this rainy night. And I literally had to figure out how to get the water to stop leaking in the set because it was making noise. They couldn't film. They, they couldn't not film because of the budget. They had to be there. And they said, well, you have to figure this out for us. And I literally came, hauled up the side of the soundstage with a roll of visqueen. And this roll is a pipe. 40, 50 pounds that I'm work, walking straight up this ladder. It wasn't stairs. It was a ladder. And I got up there and I spread the visqueen out all over the roof, got back on the side of the stage. It was still leaking. And I ripped my jacket up there. So I looked like a drowned rat coming down and uh, got in there and started creating little places where I'd have like duvetine spread over two chairs, 
with sawdust on top of the duvetine and under the duvetine. So the water would drop, it would hit the sand, the, start, the sawdust and not make any noise and continue down to the, um, anyway, it, it stopped making noise. So Savage walks over to me and he looks at me and he goes, I know who you are. And I said, what? He goes, I know who you are. He goes, I grew up in Patchog. I used to hang out with your cousins. I watched you on TV. I know who you are. I said, oh, well, okay, fine. And he went, yeah. And he kind of sat there for a minute. And then he went, why are you doing this? I said, what do you mean? Why am I doing this? It's my job. He goes, no, why are you doing this? I said, because I was an asshole, you know, and uh, yeah, I had a great career. And one day this is going to happen to you. You're going to be down here trying to, you know, shovel this crap because people don't want to work with you anymore. And he went back like this and he said, cool. I get it. I get it. I get it. Totally. And I thought if nothing else, maybe I can get fired from this bitch. So I don't have to <laughs> be doing this crap anymore. And I didn't get fired. The next day I was at work. I was like, no thing. And I ignored Savage. And then the assistant director came to me at lunchtime. He goes, John would like to see you in this dressing room. I said, well, what about? He goes, he just wants to talk to you. I said, okay. So I go to his dressing room and he goes, you play chess? And I said, yeah. And he had a chess table set up. He goes, let's play chess. I said, well, I'm not very good at it. He goes, I'll teach you. No, no, I'll teach you. And so during those chess, we did this every day at lunch during the movie. The craft service guy and one of the stars of the film, he was like the main star in the film, actually. Every day playing chess. And he'd ask me questions, you know. Well, what went wrong here? Or how'd that happen? And I did. I, I got in some pretty bad trouble at the studios. I was known as not a nice guy for a while, you know. And so I told him all these stories and stuff like that. I said, you listen, you got to listen to me because this will happen to anybody. I said, think about all these young actors who get on a TV series and two years into it, they think they're a freaking movie star and they quit the show and they ruin it for everybody on the set. They ruin it for all the other actors involved, the directors, the producer. It's screwed up because you're too good for this stuff. You know, um, he did a few films after that. He, he still got good roles, you know, but, and then I moved on and cleaned up the shit and taught my lessons wherever I went. <laughs> I guess that's enough to laugh about really. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, life is always something you learn from the things that you do before, unless you're an idiot, you know, if you don't learn from mistakes, yeah. then you're just going to repeat them and repeat them. And, you know, and, and you learn, yeah. and you're trying to pass on to somebody else. Hey, look, this, this, this can happen to you too. And, and, you yeah. to, and that's then, what you can do. Whether they take it the advice or not, uh, there's always so much you can do. Yeah. I, you know, I, when I started writing this book, I really had to start thinking deep about why certain things happened or why certain people wouldn't talk to me. I mean, I was on Insight four times. Insight was this great TV series that made, won a lot of awards constantly, put on by this Paulist priest named Father Kaiser, Father Elwood Kaiser. His nickname was Bud. Everybody called him Bud. And I don't know if you remember the show at all. It used to be on Sunday mornings. You can, they're all on YouTube now. It's worth looking up because the stars, it was an anthology series. So every story was different every week. And every single story was starred by known people, by well-known actors that played the roles. And everybody worked for free to get the show on the air. And this was on for like 19 years. 
Father Kaiser did this, and he produced Romero and a few other big films about religious heroes. Um, unfortunately, he's passed away now. But I did four episodes of Insight, um, which I co-starred in. And by the time I was 20, he didn't want to talk to me anymore. I'd be like, can we get coffee together? Well, I'm really busy. You know, I'm like, you were like an uncle to me. What's, what's, what's the deal? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm busy. How are things going, Pat? I hear you've been having problems lately. And I bumped into him in a parking lot somewhere, and he literally stayed on the other side of the car and said, I don't have time to talk. I'm like, I started before your episodes. You don't have time to talk? Well, we'll do it. We'll, we'll, we'll get together one day. And literally got in his car and drove off. And I had this happen with other people, too. And I had to take stock of myself and say, okay, you know, let's see. I, I know I got kicked out of Universal once, and I got kicked out of Paramount Studios once. And I got kicked out of a couple of casting offices. Um, but that couldn't be it, could it? Because I was being obnoxious and I was being stupid. And I was an entirely different, um, unmanageable personality. I think I got a bit of it from my dad and my great uncle Phil, you know. And it took me years to turn into a real person, you know. And some people are going to resent hearing that. This is the first time I've said this on, on somebody's interview, by the way. Uh, some of these stories that are coming out are because I wrote the book. And, um, and, those are the things I have to account for, you know, about my career. So if you're an actor or an actress or somebody trying to get in the films, you need to be nice. You don't have to be pushed into doing things you don't want to do, but you do it through your agent. You don't do it to their face, you know, and they'll remember that down the road, you know, but they'll also remember if you put up a fuss in their office about something. I tried out for the movie, um, at the time, it was called Not Fade Away. And eventually, it became the Buddy Holly story. Um, it, the, the version that I tried out for didn't get made. Somebody else picked it up, and another studio did it eventually. But this, this version of it was at Paramount Studios. And, uh, and I was trying out for Buddy Holly, but I was also trying out for you know any other character in it. That's the way I always thought when I go in. If I don't get that part, maybe there's another part. And the director of the film, he had his back to me almost the whole time. Actually, I don't think it was the director. I think it was a casting guy. And he was on the phone most of the time and I'd wait for him. And he'd, and he'd go, he'd turn around and look at me, are, are we finished yet? And I'd say, we haven't spoken yet. He'd go, oh, you're gonna do some lines. I said, yeah. He goes, okay, go ahead and, and go ahead and do the lines, I'll listen. And as soon as I'd start doing the lines, he'd get another phone call. Or he'd pick up the phone and call somebody. And then I'd be talking to the back of his head. And then he goes, after he hung up, he goes, are you still here? I said, obviously, I'm not ripe in this part. And he goes, no, well, you know, I, you, know I, you just don't look the part. I said, well, there's these other crickets. You know, there's the other guys that are there. There's a lot of parts in the movie. I mean, I, I don't have to be that guy. And he went, well, he goes, can you play guitar? And I said, yeah, I got my guitar here. I said, let me play for you and sing. And I'd rehearsed the hell out of this thing. You know, I wanted to sound like Buddy Allen. And I got the guitar and I started playing. And like right within the first eight bars of the song, the phone rings, he picks it up and turns around, starts laughing out loud while I'm singing. And I took that guitar and I swung it over the top of his desk, busted the glass that was sitting on top of the wood on the desk and started yelling at the guy. Now, I'm not sure if the woman who tackled me was uh, David Selznick's daughter or his granddaughter, but she weighed about 350 pounds. And she came through the door like, like a Marine. 
and literally jumped on me and screamed for them to call the guards. And I got tossed out of that studio. And I saw that scene in my life a few times up to then. And it wasn't always with relation to a studio. It could be like getting drunk at a party or something or getting stoned and, and challenging somebody, you know? So yeah, there was just, I, I wasn't fit for the part anymore. As a matter of fact, famous actor from old films and he was a child actor too, was Gary, uh, not Gary Cooper, um, um, Cooper, Jackie Cooper. Jackie Cooper was a famous child actor. He was like one of the richest child actors, never got a dime out of it. His parents threw him out of the house when he was 16 because he was acting up sort of like I was doing. And um, I had been cast in, in for a series regular on a new show coming out. And they were pretty sure the pilot was going to sell. They're just all the characters involved. And he was, he was the executive producer of the show. So they were pretty sure <coughs> excuse me, it was going to be sold. And in fact, it was sold. So I got the cast. It's a part of the older brother in this family show. And they called me back like a week later or two weeks later, and they couldn't get the actress that was going to play the mom. So they had another actress, their, their second choice. And she came in and they put us together reading lines. And they let her go and ask me to stay, you know, and I thought, well, that's kind of weird. And I, I was still in the outer office when the producer came in, who was somebody I knew who was an assistant director on It's About Time, came in to me and he goes, Pat, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but you're too old to be her son. And we're going to have to get somebody younger. And I went off. I was like, you know, I haven't worked in ages. I haven't worked in months, you know, and, and, and I get a part. I'm all happy. My life has changed. You're, this is life. Change. What do you want me to do? change my teeth or change my, you know, hair. I mean, whatever you want. I mean, I, I, I can age down. I can look younger. And, but I mean, I was yelling at him and stuff. And then Jackie Cooper walked into the outer office and literally grabbed me by the back of the neck and literally tossed me into his office. He said, you go in there. And he shut the door on me. And I thought, okay, I've done it again. Now I'm in trouble. And he came back in and he sat me down and started yelling at me. He goes, you need to get out of this. You need to stop. He goes, I know who you are. Those people out there know who you are. And we know what's going on in your life. You need to stop. You need to get out of this. And he told me, he said, this happened to me. He said, when I was 16 and 17 years old, I was breaking into houses in Beverly Hills. I was stealing their dope. I was stealing their money if I could find it. If there was something I could sell. He goes, I had to start my life over again. I had to get out of it and then get back into it. Once I cleared my head, he goes, and that's what you need to do. You don't need to go on any more interviews. You need to go out and find a job and do something else and get this out of your head. He goes, and I don't want to see you again until you do that. And I thought about what he said and, um, I, I was coming apart and, um, you know, and I had been kicked out of my parents' home at the time. Uh, and I was living with a girlfriend and, and that wasn't going good. And, um, I basically, I went to like a pup and taco fast food place and got a job and started working on pup and taco. And, um, and that, that's what I did. I just worked at fast food places until I figured out a way to get back on the lot and hang out with some people that would talk to me. John Badham would still talk to me. By then he was producing uh, night gallery. And he also produced, um, there was a series of four different, shows that they showed one of each week 
the first week it would be the doctor show, uh, like a medical center show. The next week it would be lawyers. The next week it was, uh, it was, uh, McLeod, the guy who, who played, um, oh, he was on Gunsmoke for years, Chester. Oh, he played Chester on Gunsmoke for years. Oh, you're talking about for McLeod? Oh. Um, yeah. Cowboy. Yeah, I, I know. I know. Oh, Jesus. It's because he was also in, he, he was, was also in Steven Spielberg's of, duel. Um, his first movie. Yeah. Duel. Uh, Weaver. Did, yeah, Dennis, Dennis Weaver? Weaver, Dennis Weaver. As soon as you said Weaver. Yeah. Ah, right. You're right. It was Dennis Weaver. Um, yeah. Uh, he was in the, 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 anyway, my friend, uh, uh, John Badham was moving up the ladder and eventually he got to start directing TV shows and then be like Spielberg. And then eventually he, he got his first film and, uh, he has a great story beyond that. Uh, but he would, you know, he'd, he'd accept me. I'd call up and say, Hey, can you leave my name at the, at the gate? And, uh, I'd come down and visit him and I'd say, you don't mind me just dropping in, do you? He goes, no, no, you go, you can hang out, you know, do whatever you want. I said, well, I was thinking, you know, I've got some other friends around here. I'm going to try to get some kind of a job. You know, he said, yeah, just use me. You know, just come in all the time. And that's what I did. I hung around there and got on the studio until I bumped into, uh, I bumped into Jack Klugman. And Jack had played my dad twice on TV. And Jack was a great guy. He was like an uncle to me. I used to see him a lot. So he said to me, so what do you want to do? And I was writing stories. And he said, uh, I had written a screenplay that I thought he would be good for. And he read the screenplay. He goes, yeah, let's, let's work on this. You just come on over to the studio. I'll get you. And you just come in and we'll work on this feature and, uh, you know, writing it. Cause I, that's what I was doing at the time, sitting at home, writing scripts. And, um, after a few weeks, he was paying me like a hundred dollars to work on Quincy. Um, you know, and what I was doing was I was doing the research for the writers, you know, how somebody dies, like somebody died in a, in a cell and, and they wanted to prove that the police had killed him uh, or set the place on fire to burn him alive or whatever. And as it turned out, he, the, the, it was a true story. The guy didn't burn him alive. The cell was made out of uh, a plastic. It was a padded cell made out of a plastic that when it sets itself on, when it gets set on fire, it puts off cyanide gas. But even before that, he would have inhaled smoke and, and, uh, uh, you know, died because of that. Anyway, I did a lot of research. I got to know Thomas Noguchi, who was a very famous uh, uh, coroner in Los Angeles. He was like, everybody knew him all over the world because the Manson murders and all these different things that he was always the coroner on. But he would call me with stories. He'd go, here's a weird thing that happened that might be good for Quincy. You might tell these guys about it. And so I'd take the information and write it as a story and give it to Jack. And then Jack would pay me and he'd take it upstairs and it would become a show. Um, and so that, that was kind of cool doing that, but I still wasn't making enough money. And, uh, my, my wife was pregnant at the time. And, uh, as I told you earlier, um, so I said, listen, I just need to get something full time. It's anything. He goes, well, what do you want to do? I said, anything. I said, just give me a broom. I'll sweep up the set. And he went, okay, you got it. And he took a handful of his photographs and he said, follow me and took me to the HR department at universal studios. And he went in and literally said, hi, ladies. And they like jumped up. They'd never seen a star before because they worked in the front office. And they were so happy to see Jack. And Jack was like, "How you want an autograph picture? And he signed autograph pictures to all these girls. And as he was leaving, he said, this is my friend, Pat. He said, give him a job. Just give him a broom. 
So I want him working tomorrow. Just like that. And they went, okay, you stay here. And so Jack said, see you later, Pat. I'll see you tomorrow. Stop in and see me. And uh, he left and I got signed up for craft service. And the, literally the next day I was working all night. <laughs> <laughs> so they were all, it was nighttime for the first couple of years. That, that's amazing that um, Jack Klugman, because watching him in Quincy, 12 Angry Men, so many different things that, that he did in the past. And, and, you know, yeah. I always know him as a remarkable actor, but to hear these stories about what he was like as a person, there's another person I interviewed, oh, great. James Rosen, who did some script writing and some episodes of Quincy also was just talking yeah. volumes about Jack, you know, and, and it's, it's just nice how he looks out for people. Yeah. He was a great guy. He did look out for people. He, uh, the guy who is his stand in, um, who is also his, uh, his go-to guy. If anybody wanted to see Jack, they had to see this guy first. And, um, and his wife was sort of, uh, she was doing small parts here and there, and they would always hire her on Quincy. She'd be a nurse. So whenever there was a hospital scene, she'd be one of the nurses. Um, and so he kept them in chips all the time. And whenever he could, he'd fit the, the husband, his man, put him in the background too. So they did really well, you know, by knowing Jack. And he just was a really nice guy. He did wonderful things for people and he always treated me like like he was my uncle you know like i'd come on the set you know and if he was in the makeup chair he'd stand up and give me a big hug and what are you up to pat what's been going on and apparently my my dad's stories never got to him or if they did he didn't he didn't act like he knew about it and you'll never know i mean that's one of the things it's it's um yeah he's yeah now he never treated me like those one of the things i wanted to talk to you about also was a movie I remember seeing when I was young and I've, I've watched it again, not that long ago. And that's horror high. Oh yeah. And, which you played Vernon Potts and it, it is a low budget horror film. Very low. With um, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of theme going on with. It. I was a, I was a teenage Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yes. And so what was that like working on that film? Cause I mean, I, I actually enjoy it. I mean, I know it's, it's, for listeners, it is a low budget. It is on YouTube. You can watch it. Um, it it's and it, it has a lot of good things with it. There there are some things that don't work in it, but I mean, there's a lot of. I think it works more than it doesn't work. I think it might have been Larry uh, Stouffer's first film. Um, Larry was a uh, commercial director in Dallas, Texas. There's a lot of fashion uh, commercials and a lot of. Dallas is sort of like the third area in the United States where there's a lot of film and TV going on. Um, I didn't know that. And I, and I, and this certainly wasn't a big part of the industry, but the Jameson film company who were the producers of record on the film, what it was a little video, or not video back then it was film. There was a little film house that did all kinds of industrials, commercials, that kind of stuff. And, uh, and Larry was their big director, you know, and, and he was just a nice down to earth, Texas kind of guy, you know, he was, there was no big head about any of this stuff. You know, I made changes to the script immediately. And he said, now you're going to be a pain in the ass and keep on changing things on me. You know, no, no, I'm not. He goes, okay, well, yeah, we can change some lines here. We can do this. Um, but when I, when I landed in Dallas and Jimmy, Jimmy Graham was the producer, he put the deal together. He was married to Rosie Holitick who plays the, 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 the girl featured in the film, the, the female Robin, the yes. female lead and um, beautiful, beautiful lady. 
And, um, and Jim uh, drove me and, and his wife drove me from the airport to the, uh, to the hotel. Oh, Larry was in the car too. And, um, they told me that they were shooting the film in 16 millimeter. And I was like, what? I've never been on 16 millimeter before. <laughs> I said, isn't that the one that's like just a little bit bigger than eight millimeter? And they were like, no, no, that's okay. That's just, this is a new thing with independent films, shooting in 16 millimeter. Because it's the only way we could budget, you know, to, to make the film. And I said, well, what's the budget on the film? And they all got real quiet all of a sudden. And then Rosie said, under a hundred and they laughed, you know, yeah, it's a bit under a hundred. Well, I found out down the road, it was like $60,000. That's what they had to do this movie, but they had all the equipment and they had the crews that they always worked with. And I don't know if anybody got paid. I got paid, you know, they didn't stiff me and they were very good with me. I had a hotel room in Dallas and I had, um, another hotel room, motel room in Irving, Texas, where we were shooting just outside of Dallas. And like one week into the shoot, I was like, you know, forget the one in Dallas, you know, save your money on that. Let's just, I'll stay with the motel, you know, um, put the rest of the money back into the show. Um, and once I bought into it, cause I, at first I was like that night, I was like, Oh my God, what am I doing? I, I'm, I'm playing a monster next, next movie. I'll be an amoeba. I don't know. So I got over it. Once I signed on to it, they were just as professional as any crew I'd ever worked with. And I treated them that way and they treated me that way. I probably wasn't as good as any of the other actors in the, in the cast as far as being a nice guy, because I was a little idiot, you know, from what I've told you the stories. Um, they couldn't film one night because I actually started the beer a little bit early. And uh, one of the scenes they had to use somebody else's arms and hands to do the inserts because I wasn't available. Um, but for the most part on the show, I got along with the crew. They got along with me. Um, the director, I only pissed him off a couple of times, I think, you know, but he was telling me about the organ music that they were going to do for the, for the film. And I said, what are you talking about? I said, this, this is a, this should be like rock music in the background, you know, make this something special, not, 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 not period Gothic music. I said, these are kids coming to see this movie, rock and roll them, you know? And he wasn't for it at all. And so I, the next day I bought the uh, album, um, the Edgar Winter Group, They Only Come Out at Night, which had the song, which was a hit at the time, Frankenstein. And I played that for the producer and, and the director. And they both looked up and said, hey, you know, this is an idea. And they had some guys that were involved in writing the music for it. And they let me hang out. I, I felt like maybe I was helping to write the music, but I think they were just being nice to me. Uh, but they wrote the music for it. And, and you must have liked it. I mean, if you think about the music, it should have been released as, as an album for the people that collect those sort of things. Because the music is really original and it's really rock music and it's very cool. Uh, people mention that all the time about that film. So, you know, there's been films with far better music since then, but I think we were the first ones to, you know, really rock it up a bit. And then Phantom of the Paradise was filming at the time in Dallas. When, I, when we were editing the film, they were shooting Phantom of the Paradise. And they were doing some pretty incredible music for that. That Paul had written, Paul Williams had written, which I was in Battle for the Planet of the Apes with Paul Williams later on. And then, um, and then I went to Florida to visit my sister for two weeks. And when I got back uh, two weeks later, they had the first cut of the film done. Now, in Hollywood, that you don't, you know, 
it could take months to get the first cut of the film done. They were cutting the film the whole time we were shooting it. And literally they had a black and white version of it, which was the work print um, that they were going to conform to and played the film. And, you know, it was great. It was, I mean, I really enjoyed their process, what they did. Then I stayed in Dallas for quite a while after that, helped with the, the original distribution of the film, which was um, that we had uh, struck 10 35 millimeter prints of the film and, um, and literally set ourselves up with a sub distributor who's a guy that usually works for a distributor, but he makes the deals with the theater. So he made the deals with the theaters for the, these 10 prints that we had. And then we couldn't deliver on the second week because everybody wanted to hold it over. So they have things in place for that. You know, that sort of thing happens. They can press things on for a week. But then in the third week, we not only didn't get our prints back, but the film wasn't playing anymore and we weren't getting any money. And so we were going after our guy and he's saying, yeah, just nobody's coming to see the film. So we played it in Dallas and um, this, this guy was, was distributing it around the panhandle states, you know, Texas and whatever's around that upper northeastern part of Texas. Um, and the, the prints were being bicycled to other theaters. They even had the trailers so that they were letting people know that it was playing there, but we didn't know anything about those deals. The prints never came back. And we got very little money out of it. And so they looked at me and said, you know, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. Let's go find a, you know, a, a distributor in Hollywood. So, and I have been reading up on distribution and I had studied distribution in, in college. And um, I was 23 at this point. And so I brought it back and the last people to see it was Crown International and everybody else had passed on it. And Crown International, you know, watched the film and I wanted to sit down and talk with them. And they said, no, who's the executive producer? I said, Jim Graham, but I'm working for him to, you know, handle it. And they said, no, we want to talk to him. And I said, well, okay, you know, that's fine. So I called Jim up and said, you need to call him directly. They want to talk to you. I said, but if you're going to have a meeting with him, let me come in on it. I said, I just read three volumes on distribution. I know how this works. And they were like, he was like, oh, okay, whatever. So he called me up a week later and he had just had the meeting with them and didn't invite me to the meeting. You know, again, my reputation, I guess. And I said, well, can I have a copy of the contract? He said, well, we'll, we'll run a copy off and, and mail it to you. And it was just, it was like adoption papers. There wasn't anything in favor of the filmmaker. And there was, you know, a dozen and one different ways that they were going to screw us over. And it was classic. There was, I had a friend who wrote books on, on distribution. The reason he was my friend was because when I read the book, I went to meet the guy. He had an office in Hollywood and he was an attorney, an entertainment attorney. And I told him what happened. He goes, well, who'd you go with? When I said, Crown International. And he was like, oh, yeah, that, that uh, I wish you would have talked to me before. He said, uh, yeah, well, we better start working on this right away. And I said, well, you got to talk to Jim, the producer, because he's, I don't hold any control over this thing. He goes, well, give me his number. That was the last I heard of that. And then that was also the last that or high limited heard of getting any money out of it. In fact, I practically had to sue them to get residuals when they changed the name and put it on TV because they weren't giving me any residuals. They were saying that I had signed off on the residual. And I was like, what does that mean? It, it means that you signed off to us all the rights. We don't have to give you residuals. And then I got the NLRB involved, the National Labor Relations Board, and they handle union problems like that. And they went in and then I got a check for 75 bucks. This thing was playing every night somewhere in the United States on TV. So I know I got screwed out of that. The guys got screwed out of their money. 
They never made their money back on the film. However, there was a little thing known as a, um, a shelter, a tax shelter, that if you invested in films, and this ended in like 78 or something, but back then if you invested in ho- racing horses or films or a number of other things, those kind of investments didn't always pay off, but they were good for our culture. And if they didn't pay off, then you could write off your investment over a period of years that you were waiting so, so much of a percentage of it until you got all your money back written off in the thing. And so um, I, I had a seeking suspicion that maybe that's what they were doing. The investors were all Dallas Cowboys. Those were the guys that put up the money for it. Those Cowboys were actually in the film. They played all the cops at the end of the movie. Uh, mean Joe Green from what Pittsburgh Steelers, he's the guy that kills Vernon at the end of the movie. And uh, I think those guys just got all the money back in tax write-offs because they weren't all that worried about it. You know, it was just another experience to them, and they all made plenty of money. Not like athletes make today, but for them anyway. Yeah. It's a different. So, it's a different um, pay scale now for athletes than it was back in the seventies. Yeah. yeah, and in terms of making the movie, those are the main things I remember because I was so involved in it in the back end too. Um, and I mean, to this day, it pisses me off, but what are you going to do? You know, you, you know, they, they've, all, they've had that movie since 1973 and, uh, nobody's ever seen a check from them. As far as I know, that's according to Jim and Jim's gone now and Larry's gone now. So crown must think they own the film, you know, because it was adoption papers in the end, there was no like five year limit or seven year limit. Like there is now, there's no limit on the uh, contract back then. So. And you can't reverse it. You can't go back and change it. So I'll probably go after them for residuals again. They're all dead. All the guys I talked to, everybody that ran the company back then, they're gone. You know, so it's a, it's a bunch of, it's a couple of lawyers and accountants in an office, you know, distributing all these films that crown got. Well, that's another thing. I called a bunch. I think I called about nine or 10 other producers who had the same kind of deal with them. And they were like, maybe we can do a class action lawsuit on them you know and go for bigger money and um the guy in hollywood just he said it's just it's too hard to put a class action lawsuit together and you never is past the statute of limitations you might never get anything out of it so but they screwed over a bunch of people it just goes to show you how people will take advantage of young people young independent filmmakers and not and, and of course they want the money don't read the contract i've heard other horror stories about um where they wanted to get distribution and they got virtually nothing at all from the distributor yeah. and, you know, yeah. and they have, they had the creative right. accounting to say, you know, even if a film makes money, how it doesn't yeah. make money and yeah. craziness. Yeah. Well, in the end, the last time I talked to anybody there about accounting, they said that was like a B movie that we had. People would pay us for an A movie and we'd throw in the B movie. You guys didn't make any money. I said, yeah, but you couldn't have sold the A movie without the B movie. So that's gotta be worth something. You know, but yeah, there was no talking to them. It had, had to go to court. And so if they're like watching this, somebody down there wants to like sue me for saying these bad things about Crown International, I'd love to see it in court. You pay for it. That's fine. I'd love to see it in court. <laughs> now, oh, God, that little bit of bad guys coming out in me again. I, <laughs> well, it happened. I mean, it's obviously, you know, something that, that, you know, hurts, you know, still all these years later when, when people get taken advantage of. Yeah. Especially since it's like one of the last things I did and I get more, I get remembered for that. And it's about time 
more than anything. And some let's kill uncle, but horror high, uh, you know, ten tend to, you know, one out of 10 is not horror high. You know, the other nine are people asking me about horror high and asking for pictures. I get lots of requests for signed pictures. I need to put a price on that too. I've done autograph shows and, and that's kind of cool, but, um, it's better to see people in person and sell them than sell them. You know, I think it's always nice when you get to meet the, the, the um, I like that too. And they ask, they ask questions and they're interested and they're, they, they're like, you know, as they say in England, gobsmacked, you know, that they're with these guys who did these films. Cause there's a bunch of us in that place, you know, and from all these different films and TV series and, you know, it's a great experience. Those those conventions are really a lot of fun. One one other thing I want to bring up of Har High, Austin Stoker, who played the lieutenant. Yes. What was it like My working with him? Because he was just, I mean, you two were the picture. <laughs> he was suave. He was Austin was more like that character in that picture than any of the other films I think he was in. He was more himself in the film, and um, and he was so cool and. And he was so professional and we didn't have to rehearse much. We rehearsed on the set and, uh, you know, we did the one rehearsal, which was the walkthrough for the camera and the director. He picked out his shot and then they'd set it up through the lighting while we'd kick back and, and talk and drink coffee. And then we'd get on the set and do it in one take or two takes. You know, we were doing what they needed. You know, we can't do 16 versions of this film. You know, you have to do it in one take. And we were fine, you know. I told him, I, I was the one-take kid when I was growing up. So Austin was great, and he's a wonderful man. And we've done autograph shows together at, at conventions. Um, and uh, and his wife, Robin, she's kind of his manager, and she's, she's just, a, she's just a, a crack. She is so funny, and she's so much fun, and she's so sweet. And so we're in touch, actually, quite often. I love the guy. I love her, too. We're good people. They're in L.A. I'm not in LA anymore. That's why I said that. Yeah. And the thing is, is I'm glad that, you know, one good thing came from this film besides, you know, getting to talk to the fans and everything about it is you had this nice friendship with Austin, Mr. Stoker. And yeah. I think, you know, sometimes they have to remember the good thing. I'm trying to balance out and take that bad vibe away and bring in the good vibes. <laughs> right. Right. And the same thing happened with craft service. You know, if I was on a movie for a long time, Sometimes I'd stay friends with some of those people, you know, and I'm, and I, I worked on Dallas for three years uh, as the craft service guy on the show, you know, doing the donuts and the coffee and buying birthday cakes. And, and when we went late, making sure that we had pizza or Chinese food or something for the guys. And, you know, I, I made friends with Larry Hagman was like, you know, really a, a buddy, you know, and, and Pat Duffy, you know, their friends, Charlene Tilton, you know, really, you know, sweet girl. Victoria Principal and I, we we were friends, you know. Uh, it didn't last long, but she she she's uh, she's a very different kind of person, very kind of interesting. I can't really talk about it that much right now. I don't even know how much I can put in the book, but but uh, we were friends. She used to say after everybody else was gone, and I I don't know if she was doing drugs or what, but she would sit there and smoke cigarettes and talk to me. And wherever I moved to on the stage to do things. She'd like follow me around the stage, you know, and I'd be like, um, you know, don't you have to get home to your boyfriend, Andy Gibb, you know, <laughs> you know who Andy Gibb was? Yes. Yeah. The singer. Yeah. Yeah. And while she was on the show, she broke up with him. 
Uh, and she would like call up one day on the set and I'm the guy that answered the phone on the set The craft service guy would answer the phone or an assistant director. But I had, the phone was near the coffee pot. So I always answered it. And, uh, she scheduled to shoot that afternoon and she calls up and she goes, Pat, guess where I am? And I said, where are you? She goes, I'm in Japan. I said, are you really in Japan or are you on your way here? Cause you're scheduled to work in less than an hour. She goes, Oh, I can't work today. I'm in Japan. I just got this idea last night and I got this late flight out and I went to Japan. She said, I grew up here for a while and I have friends here. And I'm like, could you hold on for just a minute? I got the assistant director. I said, you need to talk to Victoria. Something strange is going on. And I can hear him yelling on the phone. Don't do this, Victoria. You're here. You're here somewhere. She's like, no, I'm not. I'm in Japan. And so she hung up on him and then he called, uh, Leonard, the executive producer of the show, one of the guys that created Dallas, he came down on the stage and literally started screaming at no one. It was like, and, and the, the assistant director and the production manager and other people, they were all working on the schedule board, trying to figure out what they could get in. And they had to call another actor in that wasn't supposed to work today so they could do that scene. And it took her two days to get back. She gets back and she dyed her hair and she cut it short and she didn't look the same at all and, and uh, they said it was going to take about two hours to get that finished and so just a little short of two hours the producer asked everybody you can either leave the stage or you can sit down and be quiet and so at the at close to two hours everybody was back on this absolutely quiet silent nobody's doing anything we're all just sitting there waiting for victoria and she walks in and she goes, okay, I'm ready. And they put a wig on and, you know, did all this stuff. She goes, I'm ready. And Leonard looks at her and goes, that's only one hour and 45 minutes. We're going to sit here for another 15 minutes just for you, Victoria. And he said, sit in that chair and shut the fuck up. And she was like, she sat in the chair. And I mean, the other actors, everybody just sat there. They said, okay, let's do a run through. <laughs> <laughs> that was a pretty crazy thing to happen on a set like a big show like that that's why they killed her off in the series i can imagine when you do that um it, it, everybody not being happy with you for causing such a, a yeah a kerfuckle a kerfunk, kerfunkle with um the whole Ker, kerfuffle yeah kerfuffle yeah. yeah yeah she did enough of things like that and um and she just, she wasn't respected by anybody there because she kept on pulling these pranks. And I wasn't, I had finished teaching actors not to be assholes because it didn't work out for me to do that. So you know how it is. And sometimes you, you just can't understand why people don't understand that you're helping them. You know, they don't want to be helped. And you know what? I was so clueless. I thought I was doing something in favor of them, you know, but no, I wasn't. So anyway, yeah, she was kind of a strange character. Off camera, I'll tell you a few things. <laughs> now, you told me about you worked with Paul Williams in Battle for the Planet of the Apes, and that one you played a, yes. a young chimp. What was it like with the makeup and all that, like getting getting you know, turned into a chimpanzee? Yeah, um, we arrive about 3.30 in the morning, and they would start working, well, maybe 4 o'clock in the morning, and they'd start working on us, and by I think about six or seven in the morning, we could stop 
because we had the top half done and they wouldn't put the jaw on until after you had breakfast. Because for the rest of the you'd have a hard time chewing anything. So then we'd stop and have breakfast. And everybody's pretty quiet at that point because nobody knew who anybody was, you know, unless you had a good friend that you hooked up with there at the table, at the breakfast table. But otherwise, everybody was either half of a gorilla or half of a chimpanzee or, or half of an orangutan. And, uh, and we ate breakfast pretty quietly on the first couple of days. Um, and then, and then later, after we got done with breakfast, everybody would go in and get their chin and all the hair and makeup put on and uh, your hands were done. And by 10 o'clock, they got the first shot in. And that's the way it was for a month. I was put on that show for a month, even though I only had like two scenes in the movie. But I was there every day. I got the makeup on. Some of the makeup I brought home with me. We, we were supposed to put it in a, they had a can where you have to put your makeup in this can, you know. And I would, instead of putting the makeup in the can or taking it off there, I would just walk to my car and leave, you know. I'd drive home and tease people on the freeway and with my makeup. And it was chimpanzee driving the car type of thing. Especially when I see kids. The kids would be pointing at me and tapping their dad on the back of the head. There's a monkey in the car. So I really enjoyed that. That was probably the most fun I had. But the thing with the, with the, with the makeup was that at first, um, people didn't talk so much. There wasn't so much chatter going on. Later in the day, it got a little bit more chattery. And then after like the third or fourth day, everybody got chatter, chatty, you know, and, and we're talking it up. And then by the end of the first week, you saw like the chimpanzees always hung out with the chimpanzees. The orangutans hung out with the orangutans. The gorillas hung out with the gorillas. It was like they were segregating themselves, you know. And after a while, the gorillas were bullying the chimpanzees. You know, personal things were going on, but they were using their makeup to sell it. And they were using their makeup as an excuse to just be bullies, these, the gorillas. You know, they were like, you know, flexing their muscles and being who they are. And the chimpanzees were like frightened of them because they were smaller. I was probably the tallest, next to Roddy McDowell, I was probably the tallest chimpanzee there. You know, Kong Young Chimp was kind of, you know, because I was as tall, I was taller than, you know, the other cast members. And um, and then the orangutans, they would come between the, the monkeys and the chimpanzees, the chimpanzees and the gorillas. So it, it became like a social experiment. You know, you put, you put masks on people, you know, um, and some colleges did things where they made a red uh, part of the, the group, a red group, and they'd make a blue group. And the red group would represent somebody who is very, um, uh, you know, forceful and very, uh, you know, pushy. And the blue group would have to try and keep everybody calm, you know. And then all of a sudden, they were seeing skirmishes like they were seeing in war games, uh, you know, on a big scale. And they were using that as an experiment. And, and Planet of the Apes was doing that without knowing it. You know, they were doing the same kind of a thing. Also, um, on the first day, there was, um, there was this uh, young black actor, um, my buddy, Austin Stoker, was, he had a, a, a very good role in the film. And of course, I had the makeup on, so he didn't know who I was. And so, uh, so I'd walk up to him every once in a while on the first day, and I'd go, hey. Did you did you kill that guy that teenage uh, that teenage Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde guy? Did you actually kill him? And he'd like look at me like, "What are you talking about?" And I'd walk away. You know? Then I'd go back up to him and I'd say, "What happened to Vernon? Did you kill Vernon? I saw you. I saw what you did. I saw with all those cops what you did." And then I'd walk back. And he just he'd like stare at me. 
And I'd go up to him, I'd go, you're not going to get away with that. You're not going to get away with that. I know Vernon personally. And he looked at me and said, Pat Carter, you (laughs) 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 So he was cool. And, you know, it was great seeing him again. And I think that kind of cemented our our friendship, too. So there was that. And I I also met on that um, Planet of the Apes, um, the director, John Landis. He was in the film, too. He had a small part. And um, he was on the set, and he uh, he was very chatty with me and, and the other people there. And he was going on and on how about he's going to be a big director and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, this guy is just, you know, plus he was all made up like this, you know, uh, character, you know, like that had just come out of oblivion somewhere. He wasn't a, a monkey. He was, a um, you know, a, a, one of the bad guys, one of the uh, people from under the earth or something. And... Um, and he had just finished his first film and it's going to be a hit. And we're having a premiere next week. Do you want to go to it? And I said, Oh wow. Yeah, I'll go. He goes, it's going to be at the Hollywood theater. And I was like, Oh, they're closing the Hollywood theater to premiere your film. He said, no, no, no. It's going to be showing there and all the crew and everybody's going to be there and you can sit with us. I was like, okay. And so I went to the theater and it, it was, there was an area cordoned off in the center of the theater for just the crew and other people were there to see it. And the film was schlock. Now, have you ever seen schlock? Okay. Long time well, ago. Well, <laughs> my yeah, a long time ago. This was a while we were making Battle for the Planet of the Apes, and he was um, he talked to everybody in, in advance. His group, you know, he didn't get in front of, and uh, they played the film. And although I thought it was funny, and I thought it played to my sensibilities, I thought no, you know, this isn't going to get him anywhere. This film is schlock. You know, <laughs> it's a very schlocky film you know, in the, in the vernacular Hebrew. Um, so, uh, I thought, you know, and I told him, Hey, it's great, man. He made me laugh. That was so funny. It was wonderful. And saw him the next day on the set. And I was like, so what do you think is going to happen? I mean, you know, is this thing going to get distributed? He goes, Oh, we already got a distributor. It's going to be great. I'm going to do another picture for them too. As soon as I'm done with this, I'm starting to work on my next picture. And I was like, Oh, really? You know, boy, I'd like that to happen to me. <laughs> you know, and uh, he made the he the film sold. He made money on the film, and then his career took off after that. And he made several really great comedies. Yeah, I mean, it's, John Landis's career speaks for itself, and um, it's, it's just wonderful. wonderful. And, and he and he was an ace. He was an ace. I just didn't know it at the time. I just didn't recognize it, and I didn't realize he shot the film for nothing. You know, I just thought, why why didn't they do a little bit better with this or that or the other thing? And I knew I couldn't make a film because I couldn't come up with that kind of money. Uh, so, and plus, after what Horror High did to us, I I didn't have the guts to ask people for money to make a film, which I didn't know that they could get their money back, at least get their money back. So I just I just didn't do it. I wrote a lot of screenplays for the ability to do that. I took them to agents. I couldn't get an agent. Eventually, I did get an agent, but the agent couldn't sell any of my stuff. They one of my screenplays got sold to Parent. Yeah, Paramount Studios. And I got um, Brandon Cruz involved in it. Brandon was a friend of mine. Brandon Cruz was Courtship of Eddie's father, but he was also in the Dead Kennedys. He was the lead singer of the Dead Kennedys. And so uh, um, Brandon liked the story. It was about former child actors. You know, he actually added some things to it from his own experiences, which made the, the whole idea of the film a lot better. And so Paramount picked it up. But they didn't know no one producer picked it up. Just the you know, the people in the script department took it and they said, we're going to put it on the producer's desk. And that's a place where 
these young people from college are hired to read screenplays and, you know, pass them on to who they think might like it, you know, and, um, and they would write a review, you know, and they put like three or four pages inside the cover of the script and say, this is what I think about this film. And, um, after a year, um, we got the rights back to it because they, none of their producers, that was our agreement. None of the producers picked it up. So we got a few hundred dollars, you know, for, for dropping it off. And then they gave us the script back and said, you know, it's, it's a great idea. That's why it's been here for so long, you know, and just nobody here wants to do it. And it barks back at our own industry. Uh, you know, you're talking about former child actors and what goes on in their lives when they get separated from their work that they've been doing ever since they were a little kid. Yeah. Their life changes and you have great stories in there and the readers all liked it a lot, but you know, it's just not something we can do. And so it came back to me and I sent it to Ron Howard and Ron was like, Whoa, you know, he said, this is really good, but he goes, you need to do this as an independent film. I can't be involved with it because I'm part of the system. Even though I am who I am, I'm part of the system. I can't do a film like this. And so I got um, three copies of the script back and they all had readers reports stacked in them. And I read them. There wasn't a bad review in any of them. You know, every one of them that I, I'm reading and they're going like, this is written in the classic style of a screenplay. <clears throat> he has more directions in here about what's going on with these characters and what's going on in the sets. He goes, we've read this in, in, in scripts that, you know, we read in college to show us how to make a real film, you know, like Citizens Kane or this or that. You know, they were holding me up to a whole different standard. And one of them that even wrote at the end of it, he goes, I don't think I can get this thing sold to a producer here because this is not the kind of film that we make. Nobody reads anything like this anymore. I wish they did, but nobody is going to buy this. And he was right. <laughs> so then I tried to make it as an independent film and I, I just couldn't get it to happen. I took it to Dallas. I took it to my friends there and they were like, no, Jimmy's getting divorced from Rosie and he doesn't want to be a producer anymore. He's going into oil in which he became a billionaire. Um, but he still didn't want to be involved in making any films. So that was the end of that. Anyway, I wrote a bunch of screenplays, tried to get them, you know, produced and couldn't raise the money through studios. And that's the only way I would do it is if some, you know, like Crown International or somebody like that, you know, got involved. I hated Crown International, but they were American International and there were, you know, other companies at the time that did these films. Um, but I couldn't get them involved in it either because it wasn't a horror film. It wasn't, you know, death race 2000 or something. Now I'm curious, when, when did you come up with the concept or the idea for movie phone? Okay. Well, years after I was an actor, I actually went to um, a school called uh, Sony Institute of video technology that was in Hollywood. It was there for maybe two or three years. Okay. And then, it, and then it closed up. And I was also going to Sherwood. It was another, um, film school, but it was, uh, you know, one of these offbeat places, Sherwood experimental college is what it was called. And it was in Hollywood. They didn't have any equipment, but they, they arranged for, um, film rental houses to give us equipment to shoot. And, and mainly I was taking their writing classes. Cause I, I thought my scripts must be so bad that nobody wants them. So I'm going to learn how to write. And the, I, the reason I went to the video school was because I wanted to learn how to do video. Cause I figured at least if I was doing that, 
you know, I'd be creating and, and shooting video. And uh, I have some ideas about doing videos for companies. You know, maybe that idea will work. And so at the end of that um, period with Sony Video Institute, I went out and bought uh, a bunch of industrial video equipment and literally hung my shingle out and started calling up companies. I wrote press releases for myself to put in the local papers. And immediately I got hired by First Interstate Bank. Do you remember First Interstate Bank? No, I don't remember. First Interstate Bank was like the predecessor to Wells Fargo. They were as big as Wells Fargo. They were the big, they were the big dog. And then Wells Fargo bought them. Okay. But they called me up because the, the person who was in charge of getting a video made for their mortgage department um, just happened to be reading the newspaper that day and saw that I was starting a production company. And she didn't know me from Adam, but once we started talking, she was like, oh, so this is in your blood. You know how to do this. And, um, and hired me to do that industrial. And then I ended up doing like three or four for them. And by then I started getting other clients and eventually I opened up a studio in South Pasadena. I had a sound stage, I had three cameras and I started doing um, infomercials. And this is way back when infomercials were all about um, people doing real estate. You wanna learn how to do real estate, we can teach you how to do real estate. And those were the first infomercials. They weren't selling products yet. But eventually we got into the thing where we were selling products too, you know, and then using big stars to promote the product. So that became, you know, I was fairly successful at that. Well, one of the companies that we worked for was a company called Topper, um, U.S. Topper, they were called. And those guys had this device they called interactive voice response. And what that meant was that um, back in the day, you'd see a commercial uh, for a product. And they'd say, to buy this, to buy this product, uh, call us today at 1-800-555-1212. Call that number today, 555-1212. So if you called up, say, for example, uh, to find the Singer sewing machine uh, salesman in your area, call 1-800-555-2222. And when people called it up, they heard a human voice that was pre-recorded and wrapped up in a computer program that would ask questions get the information and spit back out answers. And um, what they started doing with it was taking, not only were they selling the product, but they were also getting demographic information about who was buying, whether male or female, how old they were, what city they lived in, uh, did they have children, didn't they have children, were they married? They would ask for all this information and they had all these demographics basically, but you know, data. And um, the data was a gold mine but they didn't know how to sell it, the, the data. And they had this thing. Well, this young guy came to me and um, he said, I want to work with you. He goes, I got this company in the US Topper. He said, uh, he said um, I want to do an industrial for them, but they're all older than me. And I don't think, cause he was like 24 and I'm 30 something by now. And um, I said, okay, I'll go in with you on it and I'll help sell it. And, and you can, you know, work with me on it and direct it. And, whatever. And we got the job. And as soon as we started shooting the video and I started realizing what that, what this was, you know, and I had written script for it too. And I realized what it was, the move, this movie thing just popped in my head, you know, you know, we could, we could be telling people where to find the movie that they want to see in their neighborhood, what the show times are, where the theater is. And we could mine demographics. 
And the guys were like, what would you do with the demographics? I said, sell it back to the distributors. The distributors are paying a company to make phone calls to theaters every night asking how the box office did and who was there and what they could find out. But they found this out like after the fact. I said, we have a way of doing this before those, those people even go to the movie that night. <clears throat> we can get this demographic information and get it over to them right away. So the distributors can tell where the movie's doing good, who's interested in it, who's watching the commercial, you know, how old they are, who they are, and target their ads to those people. And they're like, yeah, well, I, that's what we do. I'm like, yeah, that's what we do. So we'll make this thing. And so um, I actually told uh, um, uh, Leatherman about it. Leatherman was my young partner in this thing. I can't remember his name. His old age is creeping up on me. Give me a second here, okay? Russ Leatherman. Okay, so I had let Russ Leatherman in on this because Russ got us the job. You know, he literally walked me into it. And I felt like I owed him something for that. So I was going to let him in on this thing and we could see if we could make this thing work with that company topper without having to put any money into it. And so I said, but don't tell him. I said, let's do a version of it. We'll make the film like we made for them, but only just for Theaterama. And we'll, you know, put bright lights in it. And, I mean, not Theorama for movie phone. And, um, and we'll put, you know, movie clips in it and we'll just really brighten this idea up. And he said, okay, okay. And the next day he brought over the president and the vice president of the company who are needling me and saying, hey, we hear you got a great idea. We'd like to hear about it. So I told Russ, I said, you know, we were going to keep this a secret. He goes, no, just, this is too good. Just tell him. And so I told them. And, uh, and they were excited because of what he told them. They got all excited. And then they wanted to talk about the demographics, what the phone call is going to sound like. And, um, and they said, well, who are we going to get for, for the voice? And I said, well, Russ has a very distinctive voice. I said, let's, let's have him try it. And Russ was like, I can't, I'm not doing this. I can't act. He goes, I'd have to be every week. I'd have to be doing this. I go for the kind of money this thing makes. I think every week should be fine with you. I said, plus the rest of us are going to be working every week. This is going to be our new job. I mean, I was really taking it out, you know, to the, the highest level in my head. This thing's going to be huge. And so we recorded in, made a few tweaks, and then we got that, you know, hello and welcome to Movie Phone, which is what everybody heard when they, when they called up. Uh, oh, to get the word out, we had to figure out the advertising on it. And so what we came up with, since none of us had any money, we each put up a thousand bucks, I think was to print business cards and go around to local movie theaters and just get some kind of call volume coming in, you know, and, and start playing with the demographics. And so um, I made a trailer that we could play at the movie theaters. Um, I don't know if we ever got that out, but they were agreeing to play it. Um, I think they did eventually get it out after I was gone. But um, the business cards would go out. We were hiring high school kids to go to the movie theaters and put them in the windows of the cars that were parked at the theater. Um, and, and also uh, some of the theaters were putting them up on the, uh, on the uh, concessions counter. And uh, some of them were giving them out with the tickets too, you know, so everybody was getting on it. And within two weeks we were getting 10,000 calls a day. It was amazing. Um, we chose the perfect place to do the calls from, and it was all phone lines that had been put in for, the Olympics 
for all the foreign television uh, companies, you know, so that they were doing their video out through those lines or something. And that was at the old Columbia Studios lot in Hollywood. So we had like 170 lines and these calls were going into the computer and they had the computer set up amazing amounts of calls, but not enough really. And so then I came up with this idea of asking the distributors, um, we will give you the demographics for free. If you will put us down at the bottom of each of your ads for more information, call nine, seven, six film movie phone. And that's, exactly what they did. So in all the newspaper ads that they did ads for, we'd be this little strip at the bottom that you could barely even see, but there it was. And God, the call volume went up. It was like ridiculous. It was like, and then by then we were in three or four cities in California. So we were getting a hundred thousand calls, 40,000, then a hundred thousand. And it was doing really well. Um, but we were having disagreements among ourselves, um, personal disagreements, the guys were not very, um, they were not ethical. They were just not doing their jobs. They were making it up. They were having somebody else in the office do it. They ended up having to quit the company to, to work on our company full time with this application. And then they became part of the company and they voted me president of the company. But within weeks, the president of Topper was getting jealous of the fact that I was the president of the company. And that everything was happening out of my, my studio. In other words, we were doing all the calls and the computer work in my studio, not a topper. And, um, and then all of a sudden they were sort of like, what do we need him for? And I got my lawyer who was a friend of mine who set me up with, who I set up to handle all the legal work for the company, um, called me up and he said, you need to bring a lawyer with you and come to my office. And I said, why? He goes, I can't really talk about it on the phone, but you need to get a lawyer and come here. Oh gosh, I'm losing my light. All right. Were you ever going to tell me? Well, we're, we're, we're that reco- better? I'm not recording the video. I'm recording the audio. So it doesn't matter. Okay. I'll just keep talking. But it is nice to um, see you. <laughs> I don't know where to go back to. Tell me where to go back to. You were talking about your lawyer. I know it's your, pretty your, dark. your lawyer told you to get a lawyer and come over. Your, your lawyer. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know that. Uh, so you got everything. Where was I? I was going to the lawyer office, right? Yes. Okay. So I, I got a, another friend who happened to be a lawyer and had him go with me. And it was those three guys and my lawyer across one side of the table. And I was on the other t- side of the table with this other friend of mine. And they said, um, we've incorporated the company. We incorporated it a week ago, but your name's not on it. I was like, well, why not? Let's get that fixed. And they were like, well, we don't want you on it. I said, why? And they go, well, you made a mistake. Two weeks ago, you entered the wrong city for the wrong film. I said, you know what? We've got 2,000 screens that were, you know, there's going to be a mistake once in a while. Well, who, who's doing it? I said, well, I was doing it for a couple of weeks, and then I hired a lady and taught her how to do it, and she's doing fine. I said, I've checked all her work, and uh, somehow I missed that one. But, you know, I, I'll have to go back and check it out well, it's too late. You already destroyed everything by doing that. I'm like, what are you talking about? We're still getting on a thousand calls a day. They said, well, we just, we don't want to work with you anymore. And so we're taking everything out of the office. Everything's coming out of the office as we're talking right now. And movie phone's not there anymore. And I was like, yeah, look, you know, just cause I didn't want to get involved in your games, your, 
whatever your wife swapping, whatever it was you wanted to do. And I don't want to smoke dope with you guys. You know, just because of that, this is a business relationship. You guys are going to have to get over it because this thing is mine. I created it. You guys definitely came in and made it work. I said, but I was the one who came up with it and told you about it. And they were like, well, we're done. And they got up and left. And my lawyer friend, I'm like, how could you do this to me? You know, I'm like practically family with all, all your family. How could you do this to me? He goes, well, they just worked it out in a way where I had to be in charge of this. And, and he has to be in charge of you. And, uh, and that was, that was it. And I, I spent every dime I had, um, putting the company together, putting, you know, with my office, I had stopped doing industrials. I stopped doing infomercials and I was literally at a point where I was losing money and I'm buying a house at the same time. And I had spent most of the down payment on suing them and trying to get to court, never got to court, just all these, all the legal shit going on in advance caught so much money that I net, I never actually got to sue them, you know? And, and, uh, my friend Russ, uh, remained the, he, he became the president of the company and he remained the voice and he sent me back my thousand dollars and said, see, you got nothing to worry about. And he goes, if this thing flunks, you didn't lose anything. I said, what are you talking about? You, we've been in the building for a year doing nothing but this. Anyway, it's to make a long story less longer. Um, I ended up out of the company before, uh, it was sold to, um, Time Warner AOL for roughly $480 million. So just under half a billion dollars. And uh, I'm still waiting for my check, you know. <laughs> and uh, also, but before it, before it was sold, he also bought the other two guys out for pennies on the dollar. Russ was at the top of this. He wanted it all to himself. So that's what he did. And he took in investor money without telling anybody. Basically, his deal with the investors was, well, if you can get rid of all these other guys, you know, we don't know how big this pie is going to be, but we're, we need it to be, you know, get these guys out of it so that there's enough to, for us to split. And so that's what happened. And so, oh, yeah, by the time they sell those cash, it's beyond the statute of limitations. So that is just hard to hear. You know, I mean, I, I, I didn't, you know, I, I did not know I'd be bringing up something that would be. Yeah, I, be, I'm sorry I became to... a Winklevoss. Yeah. I became a Winklevoss. Do you remember the Winklevoss brothers? They were the guys who came up with the idea for Facebook. They hired, um, what was his name? Uh, Jeff, the head of Facebook. Zuckerberg. They, um, Zuckerberg. Hired, yes, they hired Zuckerberg to create this thing for the, um, my, one guy who wrote this article, uh, yeah, we got disconnected there. <laughs> uh, I can't hear you. We got disconnected. I, I actually lost the like, whole thing. Yeah. You, um, the last I heard, I think we left off last. I heard you were, you're talking about Zuckerberg. Facebook. Yeah. The, the, the Winkle bosses. Yeah, you may have to go back and re-edit some of this, but I'll, I'll go back. So I became a Winklevoss. Basically, a Winklevoss, those were the guys who actually created Facebook. And they hired Jeff Zuckerberg as an IT guy to uh, create the, the, the software that made Facebook happen. Um, but after a short period of time, 
they would try to contact Zuckerberg about how it was going and he wouldn't be getting back to them. And all of a sudden they found out that there was a version of this thing that they had created and it was online at a university called Facebook. And so basically Jeff Zuckerberg took off with it. He's a thief, basically. He's no better than Russell Leatherman was really in my book. And the, the Winklevosses, they did get something in the end because they, they sued him multiple times and they got millions and millions of dollars um, because of, you know, how Facebook has grown. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I feel like a, a, a Winklevoss, you know, because this thing made $480 million, you know, and, you know, my understanding is that each one of the guys got like a quarter of that. So he got over $50 million, you know, or, or $100 million. And as an old friend, uh, you know, never called me, uh, you know, as part of the team that created it. The guy that came up with the idea never called back and uh, offered me, you know, any part of that, you know, which I would surely have used to make an independent film. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly, and I didn't, I didn't mean to bring up any bad memories with um, movies. I didn't know. No, this is part of the story. I, you know, in writing the book, I've been telling, like, originally I was going to write the book as a coffee table book, and I was going to show pictures and make comments on the pictures. Um, it, it, some of the actors, this is how they do their, their biography, you know. They, they just tell stories. Each chapter is a story, you know. And so I thought I'd do that kind of a thing. And then I thought, well, you know, since nobody's going to really see this, I'm going to write all the, put all the mud in there too, put all the dirt in and, and just tell it in terms of what I did, what I was going through, why I was the kind of person I was, how I changed, um, you know, how I never really believed in myself. And I came to how I was all hung up on being a movie star and uh, being an actor and being a director and being a writer and being all these things. And that doesn't hold half a candle to having a wonderful wife for 46 years and three beautiful kids and six beautiful grandkids. It's, you know, that to me, that's my prize. That's what I have. You know, when you look around, you know, at people, how, you know, sure. There's a lot of people that have that, but there's an awful lot of people that don't have that, you know, and that's such an important piece of your life. And that became like the total piece of my life. I worked every day for them. And I was, I was fine with it. I was proud of it. As a matter of fact, recently, um, uh, I was given the opportunity to uh, make a mug, you know, design and a T-shirt design for myself. And so I took it and I made a logo that says craft service on top. And then, um, or it says craft service. And it shows a coffee mug on the inside of it. And, you know, having that on my desk, and this is not my desk where I'd show it to you. Um, having that on my desk or wearing that shirt, I feel just as proud of anything I did in craft services. I do in anything, you know, I did anything as an actor or meeting all those stars or anything. I'm just proud that I did that work, you know, and that that's what helped bring up my family. And so we're kind of a middle-class family. We're not rich, you know, we're a middle-class family and we have great friends and none of them work in the studios or, or barely a few actually. And, uh, we live in a, an entirely different part of California now where it's nothing but trees and farms and, and vineyards and, and horses and pigs and llamas. And it's just beautiful here every single day. So, 
I don't know what the uh, universe had planned for me. Uh, if this is it, I'm very grateful because I'm living a beautiful life right now. I'm, I'm very grateful. It sounds and like I'm not that. an asshole. <laughs> and I'm not an <laughs> asshole anymore. <laughs> well, I think, I think once, once you realized, as you said, when you went into that realization of what was causing those problems, I think once you realize you have a problem, that's the first step. Yeah. And then you're able to take care of it. And you were able to do that. And, yeah. um, and, and realize, in my opinion, what's more important in life, which a yeah. lot of people seem to have trouble with all the time. It's, it's, it's really yeah. those relationships, your family, it's not yeah. fame, fortune and all these things that are really not existent. Intrinsic. Yeah. 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 Those, as they're called um, by some philosophers, those are imposters. Definitely are. And yeah. One of the things we we said you're actor, producer, writer, and director. You've you've done a couple of shorts. So Short films. You, you yeah. haven't had, you haven't had you haven't had your feature yet, but hey, there's still time. Um, there's still time. There's there's you know, I've written a lot of screenplays, but there's one in particular that works for my age group. Again, it's not a horror film, which is what everybody wants me to do. Um, it's a it's a film that r- relates to people in in my situation that I'm 70 years old now. And I've grown into a position where I understand people my age and how funny they can be and how sad they can be, how all these things that have, you know, come together to make them who they are now. So it's, um, it's an interesting story. It, it, it would probably remind you of on golden pond, but only with a little more humor to it. <laughs> and I remember seeing on golden pond when it came out in theaters and just, that, that was a very, I just, I just love that film. You know, it's, it's yeah. And you know, people do it's the, the studios are afraid of them. The studios are afraid of those kind of films. You know, they, you have to have Henry Fonda and his daughter, Jane Fonda in a movie to do a film like that. You know, um, once the people go to see it, it's like, Oh wow, that was amazing. You know, there were no action heroes in it. Nobody got killed. You know, <laughs> there weren't any flaming arrows and it was, it was entertainment. It was great. Well, especially with Catherine Hedburn. I mean, just, just enjoying yeah. it. It's just, oh. Yeah. It, it, it was a wonderful, wonderful film. And for, for listeners that haven't seen it, you should see On Golden Pond. It's it's, yeah, definitely worth it. Driving Miss Daisy was kind of like that. Cocoon was kind of like that. You know, those films are out there, but yeah, it's hard to talk a studio into doing it. It's for some reason, as we said, the suits get into and get in the way, and they think their audience is only one particular age group, and not realizing that yeah. uh, you know there's a lot of people out there that are not that age group. <laughs> yeah, this is a nice little film about people. By the time the suits are done with it, it's going to take place on Mars, and it's going to be filled with young people and monsters. You know, but they'll still go to the movies together and hold hands. They'll we'll leave that in. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I, 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 I probably will take it around to the kinds of, you know, studios that will do it, um, Lifetime, you know, O, the, the, the companies that are r- literally leaning in that area and need good material in that place. If this script turns out good, then I'll probably take it around there first, and then I'll try to raise money for it. You know, I'll do a Kickstarter or something where nobody needs to get their money back. You know, we offer gifts and get people involved. People love to be involved in films. It's yeah. a, that's one of the things that's a different world. I know a lot of independent filmmakers that have used GoFundMe or 
Kickstarter or various other ways to get the money. They might they might not get all the money they want, but they get enough money to actually be able to do the picture and get their vision out there. Right. And just between you and I, if, if I were to, and I haven't done this, but if I were to ask Mary Batum to, to be in the film, I definitely need the money. <laughs> <laughs> she ain't going to do it for free. <laughs> as much as she loves me, I can see her with a big smile on her face going, you know, I love you, but I can't do this. <laughs> and, and, and you two have been friends. I mean, all these years. Oh later. yeah. Oh, we were, I was in love with her. I thought I was going to marry her. I did. When I was 17, I asked her to marry me and she looked at me and she went, what? I said, I want you to marry me. I said, I'm going to Australia. When I get back, we're going to get married. But she looked at me and she goes, you just don't think, do you? I said, what do you mean? She goes, I'm like 17 years old. She goes, I'm not thinking about marriage yet. And you shouldn't be. <laughs> but gee, we've been kissing each other so much. I thought that was the next step. Besides, you might have a baby. All this kissing we've been doing, you know. <laughs> no, anyway, no, I, that was, that was a, that was a, a, a missed uh, opportunity. She is just great. I still love her to this day. However, I'm in love with my wife. And that was, that was something you told me before we started recording. That was rather faithful as you, you had to make a decision. Oh yeah. Of, of a certain film you could have been in or, I could have been, yeah. <laughs> I, there's one aspect of the story I didn't tell you. I had been married before. I got married young. You know, like Mary told me, you shouldn't be doing this. I uh, got married young. We were both too young. We were both very uh, immature. We were both very childish. And it ended up in a train wreck in four months. I mean, it was just, we realized in four months, this is not working. And neither of us want it. And to this day, she and I are, my first wife and I are still great friends. You know, my wife is, you know, friends with her. She's just, there's no problem with that um, because there's no romance between us. It never has been. And she's a wonderful person and she's crazy. She's absolutely crazy. She does crazy things. I mean, and she used to blow my mind, you know, and anyway, that ended in four months. And then um, the year after that, um, I bumped into uh, this beautiful young girl. And I, some friends of mine had got me a job at Amtrak. You know, it was one of those jobs I was saying earlier that, you know, I just had to get out of the business. And my friends got me a job at Amtrak. They were working there. And I said, who's that girl? And they said, I'll leave her alone. She's nice. Just leave her alone. She's a nice girl. She's too young for you. I think I was like 23 or 24 at the time. I said, well, how old is she? How old can she be? They said, well, she's 18. You know, I'm like, oh, no, she's married. That's perfectly fine. And uh, they were, <laughs> they were like, just stay away from her. And so every time she went to the break room, I went to the break room. And after a couple of days, they were like, you're stalking this girl, Pat. I said, I'm going to marry her. <laughs> they were like, you're going to marry every girl you go out with. You go out with lots of girls. You'll go out with her two times. You won't. I said, no, no, no. I, I think I can settle down with this one. And they're like, you don't even know her. I said, well, we'll see. But I let her alone. I didn't. I didn't like make any moves. I got hired to work at Sitmar Cruises during Amtrak's off time to work in their reservations department. The guy who trained us at Amtrak went to work for Sitmar, and uh, he hired people that he had trained at Amtrak that had gotten laid off. And she was one of the people that he hired. He hired her. He hired me. But I didn't see her um, 
in the company until they put us on a cruise. They put everybody on a cruise. They hired 15 people and they put us all on a cruise to Mexico for a week. Um, and as I was waving to my friends, one girl that was on the dock that was, I guess, waiting for me to come back, you know, <laughs> she waved and then she said, who's that, who's that girl next to you? And I turned around and looked and it was my wife, my future wife. And she and I looked at each other and she looked at me like, why are you looking at me? I said, uh, let's have dinner together. She goes, well, we're all having dinner together. I said, okay. So, and after that cruise, we just started dating and eventually we moved in together. Eventually we got married. And then two years later, we started having kids. <laughs> you're, you're leaving one thing out of the story the listeners haven't heard. You were offered, that? A, you were offered a film role during this time. Oh gosh, I'm sorry, I forgot that. You can edit this any way you want. Oh no, no, no! I think this is fine. We'll just we'll, we'll go with this flow because it's natural. At at the time, I was still I still had an agent, and I was still going on interviews when I could, you know. And I'd let her know when I was free and if she could set something up. And I was working at these other companies at the time, but I'd still try to sneak out to go on an interview. And so she called me up one day, and she said, "Francis wants you for a film." Francis, of course, is Francis Ford Coppola. I had I had interviewed with him for all of his films, and he and he was always treating me like a a, a kumba, a, you know, a fellow Italian. We were kumbas, you know. And I'd go in and he'd go, Mister Cardamone. He'd call me by my real name, Mister Cardamone. It's so good to see you again. And we talked for fifteen twenty minutes, and and you know, it was just like he was so friendly that how could you not be, you know? And I say, oh, he say I you know what? You're not right for anything I got here, but I got something coming up. He goes, I, I know I can put you in that. He goes, but I got to do this other film first. The studio's making me do this and you're just not right for it. He goes, but I got, I got you in mind for something else. I said, Francis, you're always telling me that. He goes, no, I got you in mind for something else. So my agent's telling me, Francis called, he wants you in his film. I said, oh, the one he's making now in the Philippines? She said, yeah. I said, no, that's going to be a bomb. She's like, why do you say that? I said, the lead star of the film just had a heart attack and they sent him back to the United States and he can't go back there for another four months or something. I said, they had to rebuild the camera that they had there because they couldn't find parts. They had to rebuild it there and remachine the camera. It seems to me they kind of flown one out, but no, he paid a million dollars to build this camera that he wanted. I said, nobody knows what's going on in that film because every day she's like, where are you finding this out? I said, it's in the trades, read the trades. She goes, well, he wants you to go there for at least a minimum of six months. And I told my agent, I said, I'm sorry. I said, I met this girl. She's like, don't do this to me. I said, no, I met this girl. I'm going to marry her. She, he's, she's like, you're going to marry every girl. Just stop it. You'll be, you'll, you're going to split up with her, and then you're going to kick yourself in the ass because you didn't take this part in Apocalypse Now. And I was like, oh, no, that film's going nowhere. That's, that's, the studio's going to take it away from him. He's spending so much money, he'll never work. So as well, I'll tell you what. You don't show up a wardrobe on that film. Don't call me back. And that was the last time I talked to my age. So um, I didn't take the film. The girl and I have been married for 46 years now and have had the three kids. They're beautiful. We've got grandchildren. We're, you know, we're in love with life. It's just been a wonderful thing. I do always regret that I didn't take the film, but I knew that if I took the film, this girl would have been off the market because the guys were already pinching her walls at work. They were all trying to get her to go out. They would ask, they knew we were together and they would ask her in front of me, you know, 
to go to a party or to go to a dance or, or go to a club, or, you know, and, um, and I'd have to tell them, you know, really, you're going to ask her right in front of me. I mean, while I'm here or am I not here? Am I like, anyway, so it, it turned into a, a situation where I just knew this girl was going to be off the market if I left. And, um, or somebody else might kiss her too much, you know, and then she'd have a baby or something. So I didn't know. Uh, anyway, so I stayed behind and I did what I was supposed to do. And, uh, and I became a new person for her. She didn't have any of the problems my former girlfriends had. I just stayed together and we've stayed together and it's great. I live a different life now and I'm, I'm happy for it. And it's the thing. It's almost like um, your own little love story, you know, and everything worked out perfect. It's totally a love story. People tell us that all the time. They're like, you guys have the real love story, you know? And I'm like, no, look at yourself. Look at how you guys got together. And then they realized how fun it was when they got married, you know, when they, when they first met and, and it's that kind of a story. It makes you think about, you know, what happened to us, but it was before a love book. I got to say that. Uh, one, one thing I want to ask you, because this has been a great conversation and everything. I've been enjoying talking with you about these different movies and I feel, or TV shows even that we haven't even hit everything that you've been involved with. Yeah. You're working on the book. So we don't know when that'll be coming out. So hopefully let me know and we'll let people know that. Is there anything else that you're working on that you want to talk about? I got a nice flower garden going on in the backyard. (laughs) (laughs) They're cutting a tree today for me. Is that in the way it crawled over the neighbor's fence? (laughs) (laughs) Anything else? Anything else? What else? Did I tell you something that I should tell you? Did we talk about something earlier? No, no, no. I was just, I was, I was leaving it wide open for you. No, you were just theaterama. Oh, theaterama. Did we, yeah, we did talk. You're the, what, how did that start? Cause you're, you're, you also created theaterama. You're the CEO theaterama. What's What is, what is. Well, theaterama is just a one man operation. It's no big deal. Um, uh, b- before, uh, Facebook and all these other things, I started, uh, a webpage called theaterama. And, um, I think YouTube was happening at that time because I started curating theater videos from different theaters. And then I found different shows about theater on PBS and local, um, local TV stations or local cable stations. They were following local theater in their neighborhoods and stuff. So I started curating their videos with permission and I've created this channel. There's ways of creating a TV channel, pretty easy ways. Actually, basically you make a playlist and then, you know, move the um, embed code over to your website. And it plays there 24-7. Um, so I, I created a, a page called Theaterama, and we got some popularity at first, and then as other things took over, I sort of let it slack off. Um, but theaters do contact me and send me videos, and I, I change them out every now and then. As a matter of fact, I've just started working on a YouTube channel for it instead of the 24-7 channel. That's the YouTube channel is really the way to go because that's, that's the way where people go, you know, to see those, these things. So I think it'll be a YouTube channel soon. And, um, I don't know if I'm going to monetize it or not. It's the plan right now is just, I love theater. I did a little bit of theater here and there over the years. Um, the, the first play I was in was in high school and I, I was, I just didn't think much of it all during the rehearsals. I didn't think anything of all the curtain went up. I had the first line. It made everybody laugh and applaud because it was a funny first line considering we were in high school and people don't talk that way in high school, but 
of course I was back in my mental state, you know, back then. And they laughed and they followed the play. And all of a sudden I found myself acting differently because of their reactions. And when the curtain went down, I was like, now that's acting. That is really acting, you know. And the whole ensemble of the cast, they were so, they were like, holy mackerel, you didn't do any of that during the rehearsal. What, you know, we had no idea you were going to do that. And they'd say, it actually made me better because I had something to react to. And then all of a sudden they felt bad about all the shitty rehearsals. You know, it's like, <laughs> but that's where I, uh, my, my first uh, love of acting, I mean, love of theater came from. And then I did a theater all through high school and college. And then, you know, years later, I, I was like, wow, I can make a TV channel out of this. There's so many videos out there. And, and students of theater and people who love theater will like to see this stuff. And so that's what was going on. I stopped advertising it about two years ago. So it's gone downhill in terms of, you know, hits. But I think that if, if and when we do the YouTube restart, my, my son-in-law has been working on this with me. When we do the YouTube restart of it, I think, I think we'll start getting better numbers and enjoy it. He wants me to monetize it. I'm like, you know, maybe, maybe not. I don't know how much you can do with curated videos, you know, but we can start go out to start going out and interviewing theaters too, and do our own videos on that. Cause I'd love to get back out shooting again too. You didn't notice, but my daughter has a degree in theater in the production side. And so, Oh my gosh. Yes. So, I didn't notice that now. No, that's why I've always had this thing with everybody in the crew being such an important yeah. part to every uh, production. And I've always loved theater. Um, my, my eldest son has done some theater work when high school and, and things right. like that. And so it's just one of those things. I just, I enjoy the live nature of it. The, um, that performance is only going to happen that one time when you were there, you're never going to see that performance again. And I think what you talked about is the audience and the crowd just feeding you the emotion. And I think that's what makes live theater so fun is that each night it's a different energy from the crowd. It was magic. It was absolute magic. Yeah. And that's the way it was. We had three audiences, I think for that show. And the second night I was better than I was the first night. And the third night I was even better. And I know everybody in the crew, they put their all into it. And, and I mean that the, I didn't even realize there was going to be a party afterwards. There's like a theater party for the, rap you know of the play and every there was like a love fest we were all just you know clinging on to each other it was it was the worst thing to graduate you know because now we're all going off in different directions but all the kids in this play production class were just just totally into it some of them have actually gotten into acting now i mean they're not stars or well-known but you know they're doing things some of them one's gone off to be a director similar thing happened i directed um i directed uh uh uh, the the Holy Mass, the Catholic Mass, uh, on television for the past thirty years. I retired last year, and um, that's directing. It's not a feature film, but it's directing. And we've taught hundreds of teenagers how to run camera, how to cut, how to be the the switcher guy, how to direct. You know, a multi camera shoot. They did the plays in in the in the school in the local school. They've done all kinds of uh, video, one camera shoot videos where they go out and shoot it and then they have to edit it all together. Um, hundreds and hundreds of kids that have come to us from the um, our junior high, well, another local junior high and the high school. 
I can't tell you how many of them went off to college and studied video or film or acting or editing and work in the industry now. And that was because we taught them to do that. You know, we gave them a future and um, that they didn't know they had. I had some kids that are this one photographer I know. He's, he used to be a photographer for the White House, um, Balfour. Um, and he, he brought me his son, who is maybe 16, 15, 16 at the time. And he asked me uh, if I could put him on the crew. And this kid was, obviously he was very bright, but he was just, he was as bored as possible. It was like his old man telling him, get on that camera and give that man what he needs. And he was like leaning against the column behind him, barely touching the thing, you know? And so I mentored him on the headphones. He never came up to meet me. You know, I mean, he did eventually, but he would be on the headphones and I'd go, now, he said, I want you to do this kind of a shot. This is what your dad does at the White House. He gets this kind of a shot. And now watch this guy who's talking here. And then I'd still be mentoring the other kids too as they're working and getting a decent show out of it. I mean, obviously it was basic cable. Kids make mistakes. The camera zooms when it's not supposed to. He thinks he's not hot and he, he moves over. So we had to put up with that. And I, it, although I would feel like, oh my gosh, the shot got ruined, I would never say that. I'd go, okay, don't worry. We're good. We're good. Let's just keep going. And I'd, I'd maybe give him criticism afterwards and say, here's what you could improve on. This kid improved so fast. He was like his dad. And then he was shooting independently. And then he went to college. And his dad literally came back to me and said, you and the family, you gave me back my son. He said he was going to that dark space. And all of a sudden he picked up a camera with you guys. And now he and I are best friends. I was like, that's what we do here, <laughs> you know? So that was cool. That, that's wonderful. I mean, that, that's, that's the things I know. I was a Boy Scout leader for both my boys, you know, Cub Scouts all the way up. And then that's but great. it wasn't just them. It was the other young men, young guys as they were going through. And, yep. and the whole thing with scouting is to give them a safe place to fail. So if they make a mistake, it's yeah. nothing really big happens there. It's like, okay, Absolutely. what can we learn Absolutely. from this? This is or, you know, so at the yeah. end of the day, you talk about it. It's like, well, we, what, yeah. what can we do to rectify this? Even though you know the answer, you want to hear it come from them. And, right. And sometimes right. you know the plan they come up with is not going to work more than likely, but you're like, you yeah. know, let's let it play out. And, and, and that way you don't. Absolutely. They, they well, don't you have to do it. that with your kids. Yeah. You have to do that with your kids. If you stop them from experimenting, if you stop them from trying things out, eventually they're just going to feel like they don't, they can't do anything. You know, um, these kids were great. They had never heard the term before, but I used to call them the not ready for prime time players. <laughs> which of course, which of course, a lot of listeners, we all know that reference, you know, this header, yeah, but it's, uh, yeah. but for the younger generation, they don't understand. <laughs> oh, they, when I called them that they would laugh. They'd say, yes, that's who we are. And that made it possible for them to make mistakes and not be nervous. If they're nervous, if they're not nervous, that's half the battle. You know, if they're nervous, they're going to screw up. But if they're not nervous, if they feel like they're doing a good thing and they're, they're at least okay, then they keep going with it. And if they really have a lot of fun, they end up working in media somewhere. One girl that was with us um, from the time she was maybe 10 years old, she has produced 13 feature films now. She went to college. She studied film. She went to work on any crew she could work on. And now she's become an executive producer. 
Joni Smith is her name. So I, I don't, you know, I haven't seen her films or anything, but the last time I talked to her mom, she said she's executive produced 13 different movies now. So I don't know if they're independent or what they are, but go, girl, go, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the whole point. You, you gave them that, that mold. It's like, okay, go in here. This is how, this is what it's like. And you learn those different jobs and, yeah, and like it's okay. You made a mistake, but let's learn from it and keep it moving. And hopefully, they take that and move it forward with the people they work with, and try yeah. to develop that same atmosphere to get things moving. So now we have that nice crew atmosphere going on as a team. Yeah, we had in our in our church parish, we had um, five other people that were or four other people that were directors in in the industry that did TV and commercials and things like that. And they became our directors and me, we all became the directors so that we were teaching the kids. Um, and eventually, you know, I'd hand it off to somebody and I'd sit behind him and let him direct, you know, um, during the times when there's communion in our church, that could last 25 minutes, you know, people walking up the aisle, getting communion. And so there's nothing to do, but keep switching the camera to the different cameras and giving them different ideas to do. And that before somebody would direct, they would sit there for the communion and direct the communion and get ideas from the cameraman of things, beautiful things they could do with the camera. You know, like they'd start on a, a stained glass window and pulled back over streaming light coming out of it onto the congregation, dissolve it to the choir singing. And, and these guys had got that stuff and they would do that. And then I'd come back on or not come back on for the end because that's the end of the mass. They get communion. There's basically a sign off and the priest leaves. And, and so it was just, it was a marvelous experience for all of us. They used to call me the funny director. Oh, that's the funny director. I'll work with him. And because I used to, you know, be silly with them, even on line and um, just to keep it light, just to keep them focused in, in a different way and to not have them nervous or, or upset. Our other directors felt more like they have to hit the mark. You know, if they start, if they're, if you got you just mess around with them. They need to hit the mark. You know, like my kids hit the mark. They do eventually. So, and that's the thing, especially when they're that young. With the pressure, you don't want to, you want to take the pressure off of them. And I think you learned that from being right. a child actor. It's like, yeah, you know, I can do a great performance if I'm able to be more natural. Which I think you talked about earlier. William Castle seemed to be able to pull off with you and uh, Mary Batham back with let's kill uncle and things like yeah. that. Let, you know, that was, that was the first film that I felt comfortable acting in. Um, I mean, although I didn't, I never felt uncomfortable acting, but I didn't know how to act when they started. I certainly didn't. I mean, the director would say things to me like I was doing a great job. And I was like, I just stood there. I didn't do anything. I just stood there because no, I could see how you were thinking about the situation with this man. Who is this man? And, you know, it was, a good, it was, I could see the gears turning in your head and I'd walk away going, Nope. No gears. <laughs> he told me to stand there and look this way. And that's what I did. And, you know, a lot of the first parts that I did were like that. I mean, they did get me acting in like Hawaiian eye and 77 cents a strip, but I was always just being me trying to fake out people. Like I was doing something for real. That's the only way I could understand it in my head. But in the first film that I was in, I was watching the director the whole time. And before we were done making the film, I didn't want to be an actor. I wanted to be a director. And my dad was telling me, you can't be a director unless you're an actor. How are you going to get there? Just keep building your acting career. And one day they'll let you direct, you know, which 
was almost true, you know. A lot of actors do become producers and writers and directors on their shows. And I'm always jealous of them, every last one. <laughs> <laughs> but your path was a different path. And I mean, every pa- everybody's path is different. Everybody has a different path. Yeah. Two kids went to uh, um, the, uh, the producer, uh, the director of, of um, Back to the Future. Um, I can't remember his name. Friends with Spielberg and Lucas and all those guys. Uh, on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, the direct, he, he did the, um, the, the, the speech at my daughter's graduation. You got his name? Oh, just about, I was Robert Zemeckis. Zemeckis. That's it. So Zemeckis, um, you know, he did the, the, um, the graduate speech at my daughter's graduation and then at my nephew's graduation. And he told a story at the second one. At the first one, he told everybody about the career, about movies, about filmmaking, about life, about education, about what you're going to do. And he said at the end, and if you have any questions for me, call me up. Please call me up and I'll give you the answers I can. And only two people did that. Two guys who went there together and he was at Lucasfilm and he brought them in to give him a tour of the place and everything. And their question was, they sat him down and their question was, how do we get into the film business? And his answer was, you just do. And that was the story he told at the second graduation that I went to that he was talking. He said, you just do it. However you do it. Ask anybody how they got in. They'll tell you a different story because it's just however you do it. You know, and you can find all those stories. They're all talk about them. They're in books or in magazines. You just got to look it up and find it, you know, and that's the way it is. And that's, you know, my path you know, where it led to, um, you know, wasn't what I was expecting from the time I was nine until I was about 40. But, <laughs> you know, here I am thinking, well, maybe this will be my, you know, my, uh, what do you call a piece that you take in your, your, your dossier piece, your presentation piece. I'll take this to heaven with me. <laughs> That's true. I think it'll be my, my portfolio for the afterlife. <laughs> your thesis, you know. Um, yeah, this will be my thesis. Yeah, you know, and, and I think that's what everybody does. I mean, it's um, you can go with the old analogy, like everybody's life is a story or a book. Yeah. And there's different chapters in it, and um, yeah, some of them are going to be bizarre, some of them are going to be boring, and some of them are going to just be, be interesting, and some of them are going to be humorous. But and sometimes it's all in the same chapter, you know, depending on what's going on in your life. But it's uh, that story. I'm is hoping yours. this is the last chapter of the book. I'm hoping that's the last chapter of the book. And then I said, action. <laughs> that would be nice. You know, if you got to finally yeah. pull it off, but I think we, I've really enjoyed talking with you. Um, I've enjoyed talking to you too. And... I don't know anything about you though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, people are listening in to find out about you and, and um, I, I'll tell you more about me when, once we're done this, when we do our proper goodbyes, but, Okay. I just want to say thank you again for taking time. I mean, we this was a, a a long, nice, and detailed, I think, conversation or discussion or interview of your life. It's and you you shared a lot of things you said that you haven't shared before, and I'm, I'm very thankful that yeah, you felt comfortable doing that. No, I didn't feel comfortable doing it, but I did it <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Particularly the Victor Victoria Principal story. I I, I got really. 
<laughs> I get really flummoxed talking about her. She was a different character. <laughs> She'll probably sue me. <laughs> uh, that, that's just she listens to this. So it's, it's one of the odds. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks again. And um, thank for, you. For thank you very much. Oh, thank you welcome. very much. I've enjoyed talking to you. I've enjoyed talking to your audience. And um, gosh, if you hear that I'm in a, in a, in a autograph show near you, uh, please come and say hello and, and let's chat and buy an autograph picture from me. <laughs> oh, definitely. And, um, listeners join us next time for the next episode, which either be a movie decided by the roll of a die or an interview, but otherwise stay safe, do something to make you happy and, um, just have some fun out there. kill me if anything happens to us and it looks like an accident he gets his hands on five million this is very serious barnaby where's the sergeant's gun i don't know i didn't take it your uncle's trying to kill you right let's kill uncle first Let's kill Uncle before Uncle kills everyone. You've heard of Homicide. Now see a little Uncle's side. Good heavens. What's the matter? Fuel tank's empty. Well, looks like the end of the game for both of us. Here we go. Yeah!